Good morning, everybody. In the case of Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness et al. versus Tusif Uriman China, for the appellant, Minister of Public Safety and Emergency, uh, Donna Ree Nygaard, Liliane Banturakis, for the respondent, Tusif Uriman China, Nico G.J. Breed, and Barbara Jackman, and Chris Reed, and Farah Salim. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Francis Mann. For the intervener, and Immigration Detention Network, Sati Sikar, Meja Martin. For the intervener, Canadian Council for Refugees, Erika Olmsted, Molly Jok, and Peter Edelman. For the intervener, Community and Legal Aid Services Program, Subod Barati, and Suzanne Johnson. For the intervener, EGAL Canada Human Rights Trust, Michael Batissa, Adrienne Smith. For the Intervenor Defense for Children International Canada, Farah Udani, Jeffrey Wilson, and Christina Doris. For the Intervenor Amnesty International Canada, Leila Demirdaki, Jimmy Liu. For the Intervenor Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Iwa Krajiska and Pierre Jemson. For the intervener, Canadian Prison Law Association, Simon Boris and Simon Wallace. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, Jared Will and Joshua Blum, or Bloom, I should say. For the intervener, Queen's Prison Law Clinic, Nader Hassan, Gillian Moore, and Paul Quick. Ms. Nygaard. Chief Justice, Justices. This court has consistently held that where Parliament has enacted a complete, comprehensive, and expert regime for the review of detention, provincial superior courts should decline to exercise their habeas corpus jurisdiction. The Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, or IRPA as I'll refer to it, provides such a scheme. And the judge at first instance in this case was correct to decline jurisdiction. The Alberta Court of Appeal, in uh, finding otherwise, based its decision on fundamental misunderstandings of both the nature of habeas corpus and also the nature of the IRPA scheme. And there are four elements to that which I would uh, like to address today. The first is the manner in which the issue is to be considered, both under the IRPA scheme and under her habeas corpus. The second is the question which is to be considered under each of those. 
The third is the availability of remedies, and the fourth is in relation to the timeliness. So I'll turn first to the manner in which the review is conducted under both the ERPA scheme and under habeas corpus. And there's three aspects to uh, what occurred here that I say are based on misunderstandings of those two schemes. The first is in relation to the overall burden which is on the minister in the ERPA scheme. The court uh, inaccurately in our submissions said that the minister had no need to explain or justify the length or future detention, uh, future duration of the detention, and that is simply not accurate. Before the board, the burden is always on the minister to justify the detention. But that's with reference to the grounds for detention. It doesn't relate to the effects of the detention as anything more than a factor to be considered. Isn't that right? Uh, the detention, the, the, the consideration of whether the detention is justified, uh, there must be a ground for a detention. Right. And those factors must be considered. They must be taken into account in determining whether detention is justified. So the most that the can be said the most that can be said is the ongoing effects of the detention must be taken into account. There's not an actual determination of whether the effects of that detention um, are unconstitutional. No, I, I would say that that's not accurate. In fact, going all the way back to uh, Sahin, which was the case that originally set out uh, Justice Rothstein in the federal court at that time in that case set out the factors which were later adopted in section 248 and referred to by this court in Charkawi and Justice Rothstein there made very clear that the length and the future duration of the detention were important matters for the board to take into consideration in determining whether the detention was justified. They are yeah, but part that's, of the But that's context. the point. You're determining whether the detention is justified with relation to the grounds. I mean, this may sound like semantics, but I think it's pretty important. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a distinction that I'm, I'm trying to pin you down on. What you're talking about is using the effects of the detention as a factor in determining whether, with reference to the stated grounds for detention, that detention is justified. Is that, in your submission, the same thing as a determination, not that the detention is justified with relation to the grounds, but that those effects are, have made continuing detention unconstitutional? Yes, in my submission, those amount to the same thing. Because as this court said in Charkawi, in order for a lengthy detention to be constitutional, those are what the court needs to take, or in this case, the board needs to take into account. So they're one and the same thing. If, if taking those things into account, the detention is justified, it's justified because it is also constitutional. Okay. So in my submission, they do amount to the same thing. And, and the fact that the, the board does, in fact, impose this onus on the minister is reflected uh, in the very um, record in this case and in many others. And, and you'll find in the condensed book, I won't take you to them, but there are excerpts at tabs uh, one through three from the hearing where Mr. Chino was originally released uh, in November of 2013. 
2013 and from the, the, the last detention hearing prior to the habeas corpus application at which he was still detained. And for example, in that, uh, that latter hearing, you'll see that the minister was put to task for not having met his burden in relation to the identity issue and the danger issue. Uh, the member did find that the burden had been met in relation to the flight risk and taking everything into account detention was uh, justified in the circumstances. Uh, there's also a number of other cases you'll find at that uh, tab, of the, at tab three of the condensed book that uh, include the federal court decisions which include large excerpts from uh, member decisions showing that the board puts the minister to their burden in establishing these things. Um, and, and that, that includes the length of detention. The second uh, element that, that the court relied on here was the idea that habeas corpus considers the detention afresh, whereas the IRPA scheme does not. And in our submission, that is also inaccurate. Dealing first with the IRPA scheme, the board is in fact required to make a fresh determination at each hearing of whether at that point in time the detention is justified. And there is much reference to a quote from the Thanabella Singham case in which the court referred to the need for a member to provide clear and compelling reasons if they were to depart from a decision of a previous member. And in our submission that quote has been very much taken out of context. In Thanabella Singham, the court was explaining that if a member is going to depart from a previous decision, they need to explain why they are doing so. It didn't in any way make previous decisions binding. It didn't in any way lift the obligation of the member at each hearing to make a fresh determination based on the situation at that time as to whether the detention remained justified. In, court, in fact, the court was clear to say that the minister must establish on a balance of probabilities that the grounds were met and that the uh, decision to detain remained justified. There is an argument made that uh, this process of uh, reviews is like a rubber stamp exercise. And, and I would say that that's not made out if one looks at the cases. And once again, those uh, cases that I have reproduced at tab one in the uh, book, you'll see that that doesn't in fact occur. The fact of the matter is the uh, immigration um, division makes thousands of release decisions every year, decisions releasing individuals. Uh, it's, it's not a rubber stamp. People uh, get released regularly when it's appropriate. But the other thing is that even in Thanabella Singham, the very case that keeps getting referred back to, in that case, uh, the member had made a different decision than the previous member. It was a challenge by the minister to a release decision because the, the, the most recent decision had departed from the prior decision ordering detention there were no significant changes in circumstances. The member in that case had just assessed on their own the entire circumstances and come to the conclusion that the, in their view, the detention was not justified. And the court said that that was absolutely fine so long as they provided reasons for why they were coming to that different decision. 
So it is being considered afresh in every situation. And once again, in, in um, tabs under uh, 1B in our outline in our book of uh, our condensed book, you'll see examples of where that it's very clear that a fresh determination is being made. And certainly that the federal court has made clear that that is the obligation on the board members to make a fresh determination at each hearing. In contrast, that is not what habeas corpus is. Habeas corpus is at its heart about the return for the, of the grounds for detention. Traditionally, that was all the court looked at. Is there a legal justification for this detention? In this case, it's a decision of the immigration division of the board detaining. Now, the writ has evolved over time, and this court uh, expanded it to allow uh, a court to go behind the face of that uh, return and look at the reasonableness of that decision. Uh, that, that's, of course, the Kayla case. But this court's habeas corpus has never been and is not a wholesale review on the merits of the underlying decision. This court has been consistent in saying that throughout the habeas corpus case, cases. It is not a wholesale review on the merits. It is an inquiry into whether there is a legal basis for the uh, detention and an ability to go behind the face of that basis to determine the reasonableness of that decision. So the IRPA scheme does provide every 30 days a fresh review of whether the detention is justified. Habeas corpus doesn't. Habeas corpus provides the same thing that is provided in a federal court judicial review. So you don't distinguish between a review of the basis for the detention and a review <clears throat> of the effects of a continuing detention. Is that fair? That's not what habeas corpus is. Habeas That's not what I asked. Yeah. Do you distinguish between those two concepts? I, th I think it has to be put into a factual matrix to, to know whether there's a distinction between those two concepts. There may or there may not be in some circumstances. Um, so it depends what effects you're talking about. Well, decision to detain and effects of the continuing detention, those seem, those seem like two, two distinct concepts. What I, I take from your answer is sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. I, I think that's accurate. For example, if the effects of the detention, one of the effects of the detention in, in this particular context, uh, when you're dealing, for example, with a flight risk, is that the person is available to deport when that occurs. So that's an effect of the detention. That's certainly taken into account and is part of the considerations in determining whether the detention is justified. Uh, so it depends, I think, on, on which particular effects. Well, effects on, the liber effects on the liberty interest. Well, I mean, a detention always affects the liberty interest, right, obviously. But at some point, at some point, we ex do you accept that at some point a detention can unconstitutionally affect the liberty interest? Of course. Okay. So do you understand that to be distinct from the grounds for the detention in the first place? Those, is, that a, 
Is that a different kind of challenge? No, it's not a different kind of challenge I mean, because there are the grounds for the detention that are looked at in, re in combination with the length of the detention, the future duration of the detention. So what length of detention can be justified will vary with the grounds for detention, with the reasons for detention. And, and that's clear if you look at the decisions of, 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 the, um, of the board, that depending on what the grounds of detention are, what the reasons for detention are, how they could be accommodated by alternatives to detention, or whether they can't be managed through alternatives to detention, that's all part of the decision-making process, and it's all part of what makes these decisions constitutional. And, and, and that really uh, brings me to something I was going to discuss in a little while, which is this idea of the, the board not being able to consider the constitutionality, not being able to consider charter issues, uh, which was something else that the Court of Appeal said in this case. And, and that's just fundamentally not true. The board is, in fact, required to consider constitutional issues and is required to make its decisions, as are all administrative tribunals. They are required to make their decisions in a manner that is consistent with the charter. And this court in Doré has, uh, has, has emphasized that and emphasized that there is deference to be given to boards applying the charter to the area which they are responsible for dealing with. So there's no question that the board has to make its decisions in a charter compliant manner. And it is well aware of that obligation and it does so. And the, the statutory scheme is designed to ensure that that happens. Now, in the statutory scheme, you can't account for every um, nuance that may arise on a given case. Those things, but it provides a framework. It provides the framework that this court outlined in Charkawi for ensuring that lengthy detentions remain constitutional. And this court in Chokawi said even if you have all of those things in place, it's possible that a given detention may become unconstitutional. So that has to be kept in mind when the board is making their decisions. Does Parliament have to give express statutory language to oust uh, the jurisdiction of a court to grant habeas corpus? No. I mean, and it, it's, it's not a matter of ouster of jurisdiction. Um, uh, this case has, has never turned on whether the court has or has not jurisdiction. It's, right. it's on the exercise of, of discretion to decline that jurisdiction. Okay. Uh, but in, for example, the exceptions that this court outlined in May versus Ferndale, where habeas corpus jurisdiction should be declined. Those are not places where Parliament has statutorily ousted habeas corpus jurisdiction. So. The uh, third element that the Court of Appeal referred to in drawing a distinction between the ERPA scheme and habeas corpus uh, is the, where the burden lies. 
And I would stress once again that you know, part, part of, not just part of, but a very important central part of the ERPA scheme are the board reviews. And on those reviews, it's clear that the burden lay with the minister. When you look at the federal court review of those decisions, yes, there is a requirement for leave. However, that requirement for leave is uh, no different than, and in fact, I would argue um, in the, the way long-term detention habeas corpus has ha applications have been carried out, is actually less burdensome on the detainee than the threshold issue in the habeas corpus application, where the detainee is required to, to um, show that there is a legitimate ground to bring their habeas corpus application. And we've put in the condensed book uh, one example, which is the Dadzi case, the Philip case out of Alberta is another example of this, where the habeas, the court declined to exercise their habeas corpus jurisdiction after going through a very detailed analysis of whether the detainee had met their burden, not just to show as you have to to get leave in the federal court, an arguable case, but that the detainee has demonstrated that their detention is long-term and uncertain duration. And in both of those cases, in, in Philip and Dadzi, the court found that although long-term, um, and, and in Dadzi, um, uh, it was a, about two years that the individual had been in detention, that despite that, they had not, uh, they had not met their burden to establish that their detention was of uncertain duration, such that the court should exercise their right to habeas corpus. So it's a very real burden that's being applied to the detainee in these habeas corpus applications. Uh, and I would argue that, that, that the burden to uh, meet the test to get leave on habeas corp, uh, on, uh, to the federal court is not as stringent as what is being applied in these habeas corpus applications. In addition, to get leave to the federal court, all the detainee has to do is raise an arguable issue on any issue which could undermine the detention decision. And uh, the burden. Let's say that uh, in an habeas corpus proceeding, uh, the detainee is successful to demonstrate that his or her detention has become indefinite. Is it not the obligation of the court to release the detainee if the detainee discharges that burden? Uh, no, there's still the second step. That's, that's the burden which um, entitles the detainee to access to the writ of habeas corpus. Yeah, but let's say, I'm just comparing uh, the remedies available. Let's say that the detainee uh, takes an habeas corpus and is able to discharge the burden that his detention has, been, has become of an indefinite duration. I always understood that the court does not have the choice but to release the detainee if he has discharged his burden, as opposed to the board if the board comes to the conclusion, the member of the board, that the, the, the detention has uh, become of an indefinite duration, is the board obliged to release the detainee or can the board consider other alternatives? Well, I would say that the, and this gets uh, to the issue of the question that's being considered by the board as opposed to uh, the court on habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. and. 
they're not actually different. It's it, in my submission. They are the same question. And the question is, was uh, the decision of the board, the question in habeas corpus is, was the decision of the board reasonable? So the court is going to look at and should be looking at all of the factors, same factors that the board looked at. So if it was unreasonable in the circumstances of the particular case for the board to say um, that the given uh, detention was still uh, reasonable to achieve the immigration purpose for which it was there. And that's exactly the same thing that the courts are looking at. And it's reflected. This is just judicial review, then, in your work. It, substantively, yes, and, and, and this court has made that wow. point in the habeas corpus cases. They are, they are it, it's a very specific and powerful remedy, but it's a very Apparently specific Apparently not. Apparently it's remedy. just a question of reasonableness review. That, that's what this court said in Kayla. You can, you can, habeas corpus is designed to look at whether there is, uh, to require the jailer to return the cause for detention and uh, But in Kayla, they, were, they Kayla. were challenging a specific decision. They were actually going to the root of, of, the, of the merits of the decision yes. that had been made. Yes. Right? This is not that case. But that's what habeas corpus is. Habeas so, so you say, I mean, but that's the premise. That you yes, and I mean, that, that's, that's how the writ is developed, and that's what the writ is. The writ has required the jailer to bring to the court the cause for the detention. The cause for the detention is the decision of the board to detain. Pursuant to Kayla, the court can go behind that decision and see if it was reasonable. But you, don't, you can't have a detention, or you certainly shouldn't have a detention, that doesn't have a, a legal basis for it. There has to be a basis in law to allow you to detain this person. So we come back to the original sort of point between you and me, is you don't distinguish between a review of the underlying decision to detain and a review of the effects of that detention on the detainee's constitutional rights. You, you view them as one and the same issue? Yes. Okay. Can you uh, clarify for me specifically, what are the factors that a judge on a habeas application would consider uh, in, in the case of a detainee? The judge would consider whether there was a lawful cause for detention, whether this is a valid decision of the, of, the, uh, of the board to detain, and whether that decision is reasonable. So it would be review of the immigration decision, and the context and factual matrix would be the immigration background. Yes. And if that petition was unsuccessful, the detainee would be, would be back into the immigration scheme? The immigration scheme never stops. Okay. So it is a, de it is a mm -hmm. departure to review in a different way the liberty interests of the detainee. Is that your position? It's a departure to review in a different forum the liberty interests of the detainee. Aside from the burden, 
Are the factors different? In my submission, no. The fact, if, if a court were to exercise its uh, habeas corpus jurisdiction, in my submission, it would have to look at exactly the same things as a court on judicial review because all it can do is look at whether there is a lawful decision and whether that decision was reasonably made. That's what habeas corpus is. You said that the decision is to achieve immigration purposes. Yes. And let's, say, let's say it takes five years to achieve those immigration purposes and the person is detained pending that. Are you saying that the only uh, remedy available to that person is uh, the 30-day review? No, they also have judicial review to the federal court. But no habeas corpus. Even no. if the person is not contesting the validity of the detention order, the person says, I'm not contesting that I'm a flight risk. You want to deport me? Can you do it within a reasonable delay? I don't want to spend my life in jail. Well, and the court's going to look at all of those factors, and it's going to depend. I mean, we have cases, for example, Torre, which was a habeas corpus case. Five years. Almost, almost five years. The court found it was not going to exercise its jurisdiction because the detainee had not established in the circumstances of that case that the detention was indeterminate. So it's very factually based. You, there's issues of uh, the cooperation of the detainee. There are issues of the cooperation of foreign states. Uh, there are logistical issues. There, there are any number of very factually intensive issues that will uh, play into whether a given detention is reasonable in the circumstances of that detention. You could have a detention of a year where the board says, in the circumstances of this case, that's long enough and, and we're going to release. Or you can have a case where it's been four and a half years and because of the circumstances of that case, it's not unreasonable. It's a very factually intensive uh, determination of all of the considerations. That, and, and, and this gets to the point of the expertise of the board. Many of these considerations, or all of these considerations really, are very immigration based. They, the reason the person is in detention uh, is to eventually remove them from the jurisdiction. The, the board is looking at things like um, their cooperation in, um, in establishing their identity, the, the interactions with foreign states in uh, establishing their identity, the uh, need in some cases to get a pre-removal risk assessment and how long that's going to take. Uh, the need to get travel documents from foreign states. These are all immigration matters that the board are very familiar with and you will see in some of the uh, excerpts that we've put into the condensed book that because the board are very familiar with these immigration matters, they have a sense of what is reasonable in a given circumstance or that it's, it's not reasonable that this pre-removal risk assessment is taking this long. Minister, you haven't provided a reasonable explanation for why this is taking so much longer than it normally takes. We're going to release this person. So that expertise and the immigration issues that are occurring, which are 
delaying the removal of the person are immigration issues. And this is one of the things that the courts have used to justify the habeas corpus uh, jurisdiction to say, well, it's about detention. It's not about immigration. So the, the expertise is unimportant. But that's just not true because, as I said, this is very factually dense uh, considerations as to why in one case four and a half years isn't unreasonable, but in another case a year is unreasonable. And it has to do with all of those immigration-related issues. And so the expertise of the board is very important. And you will see in some of these habeas corpus uh, cases that post-date uh, the one before you today that the superior court judges are appropriately giving a lot of deference to the board's decisions and how they come to these findings because of that expertise. Immigration is not an issue that the superior courts deal with. They do not have expertise in this area. They don't have the experience. Where do we put any inference, assuming that there are aspects of the evidence which uh, we accept that show that the process, regardless of how um, how in theory you're explaining, although it's not just theory, I appreciate you're saying factually, but in theory is not allowing people to get access uh, in any kind of meaningful way in many situations. Where does that go into the analysis? Where, in any system, there are errors. Errors occur. Um, and What's important is that there be a means for correcting those errors, and there is. There's a review to the federal court if the board does make a mistake. That does not make the process, the, the scheme, any less complete, comprehensive, and expert. That would be like saying, because appeals are allowed by our courts of appeals as a fundamental problem with our trial courts. I mean, that's not the case. Errors occur in any system and will occasionally need to be corrected. And in my submission, those cases where things have not gone as they should go are simply that. They are errors which can be corrected by the court. But if the errors, what's alleged is that the errors have the effect of depriving detainees of constitutional rights. If, the, if there's evidence to demonstrate, in fact, that the conduct of the state has that effect, are you saying because the scheme, the words of the scheme are proper, that the impact in any given process uh, is irrelevant? No, it's not irrelevant. I mean, if, if the board applies the scheme in a given case in a way which infringes on a person's constitutional rights, that can be corrected by the federal court. If it's systemic, if the errors are systemic. There's absolutely no evidence that the errors are systemic in this case. Even if the court accepts the new evidence that uh, the respondents have sought to file, that was an audit report of 14 detainees. There are tens of thousands of detention decisions made in this country every year. And that report looked at 14 cases. There are an equal number of cases in the authorities that you've been provided that show the system working perfectly fine, where the, everything occurs as it should occur. 
So, and, and, and in fact, in that report, they looked at 14 cases, but the problems identified were actually primarily in four of those cases. You cannot say on the basis of four problematic cases out of tens of thousands that there is a systemic problem. So I would say there's absolutely no evidence of a systemic problem. Um, and in addition, I would say that even though that was an evidence of a systemic problem, it was an evidence that there were problems occasionally in some cases. And the board has taken that very seriously. You'll see in the evidence that the, um, the respondents seek to file the response of the board. And, and you have to remember, it was also the board that requested the audit in the first place. It came to their attention that there might be some problems. They wanted it looked at, and they're taking steps to correct it. So there's absolutely no evidence that there is any kind of systemic problem here. In any system, there are going to be mistakes made, and those mistakes can be corrected. Can you just help me out, though, with something? Under 248, I just want to get a handle on this. Um, these are factors to be taken into account. Once the minister has established one of the five prerequisites that would warrant detention, then you look to these other factors <clears throat> with a view to deciding, even though, minister, you've satisfied your burden under A to E earlier, um, we're going to look at other things. Yes. And one of the things that they look at is the reason for detention. Yes. And the reason for detention um, is that the person is a flight risk. Let's just assume that. Um, I take it that could overwhelm delays that are inordinate, undue, excessive, not properly explained. Um, and one could say, well, that's reasonable because basically as long as this person remains a flight risk, those factors are not going to alter the reasonableness of the original decision. Even though those factors, when considered in light of the charter, might well warrant a remedy. Then I would say if those factors, if considered in light of the charter, um, were inappropriately applied, it's not a reasonable decision. The, you mean were inappropriately... Well, you know, you're, you're saying hard, that the, no, no, the weight was given more to one factor than another? It's hard it, to argue with a decision that says, I'm not letting you out because you are a substantial flight risk. So the fact that there have been unexplained delays and the fact that this thing has been dragging on and dragging on and dragging on and every 30 days really nothing changes and it just keeps dragging on, that will not overcome the fact that you're a flight risk. Would that be unreasonable? Uh, it may be, depending on the circumstances. It certainly may be. Um, you know, there are circumstances where it wouldn't be. Uh, but it, it, as I said, it, it's, a, it's a complex factual matrix that the board's taking into account. But if in weighing all those factors, they do so in a way that is inappropriate given the charter, then it would be an unreasonable decision. 
but there may be situations where the flight risk is, is you have to look at everything in order to determine whether a given decision is reasonable. But the bottom line is, if at the end of the day the decision is made in a way that's not charter compliant, it's not reasonable. The board can always impose conditions, just and regularly does. And courts can impose conditions. I mean, we, courts do that all the time on flight risks. They, they do in the, the criminal setting, yes. They, yeah, they, nothing new there. Pardon me? Nothing new there. The considerations are different. The flight risks considerations in an immigration uh, setting as opposed to a criminal conviction setting are different. Um, you know, in a criminal conviction setting, you're concerned about the person leaving the jurisdiction. That's what you're trying to accomplish in an immigration setting. So, I mean, it's, they're, they're different kinds of risks. Um, but it happens. I mean, you know, Harkat's on house arrest right now. I mean, the other Sharkawi defendants, same thing. Yes, yes. And, I mean, that's, that's a different... Yeah, but, but, but that's a different scheme, but yes, yes, it does, the, the court does do it in some, yeah. in some certain sense, and so does the board. Uh, the board has broad powers to impose conditions and does on a regular basis, and that's one of the factors that they have to take into account, are there alternatives to detention? Um, so that would, in that weighing exercise, that comes in there. Can Yes, this ground is met. Yes, this person is a flight risk. Can that risk be managed through alternatives to detention? All of that goes into the pot and has to be looked at in determining whether... We're just having trouble when they're referred to as factors, how one factor could not dominate and, and yet be found to be reasonable. I, this is where I'm having a trouble with it. It's just a factor. Well, there's any number of legal tests that we have in our system where courts have to consider a number of factors and give them different weight and the weight to be give, the appropriate weight to be given to any factor is going to vary with the circumstances of the case. That's not an unusual no, but situation. Corpus, if in fact the effect, as my colleague has said, is to breach the person's seven or nine charter rights, it's not a question of, you know, um, it's a factor. It's the detention at that point is unlawful. Well, and, and as I Never said... Never mind unreasonable, it's unlawful. And, but as I said, if a decision is made in a way that violates an individual's charter rights, it is by definition an unreasonable decision. I'm not sure that that's not begging the question. If what you're looking at is just factors. You're just looking at a factor. And the factor is, yes, uh, I'm satisfied there's been an unexplained delay here and uh, lack of diligence. But on the other hand, I think that factor is outweighed by the risk of flight. And it will depend on the particular circumstances of the case. Those are the very factors that this court outlined in Sharkawi to say these are the things that have to be looked at in order to make a long-term detention uh, constitutional. And the court didn't say in that case that there was, they were anything, they, factors, they were all things to be considered. I'm wondering, though, that in terms of this immigration scheme with the 30 days, you know, it's, it could be a bit of a mugs game in the sense that, you know, what's happened in the last 30 days to change anything? And nothing's happened, and nothing's happened. And it's like, rather than looking at it 
as death by a thousand cuts. They just look at it, well, nothing's changed. And, and, and so, you know. That, that's not accurate. The, the, the uh, job of the board member is to look at whether the detention is justified at this point in time. And we have examples in our condensed book where nothing has changed other than the passage of another 30 days. And the board member has said, okay, we have now reached the point where this has become unreasonable. The, whose onus is it at that point? It's always the minister's onus to just, to, to, who bears the burden of demonstrating that the detention is justified at the point in time that the board is making their decision. And where that's, is that stated? Th that's in the act. Where? Um, remember the, and, and it's also repeated. I'm talking about step one. Yeah. Step one, the minister has the onus of showing one of those five things. Now we're into factors. I want to know where it says that in the, in the context of these regulations. It doesn't, it doesn't say it in that way in the regulations, well, but, the case, but the case law is clear, and Thanabella Singham is one example where the court says the burden is on the minister to justify, that to justify continued detention. And for detention to be continued, the board must take into account those factors. So that's part of what the minister has to justify. And you'll see in the decisions that the board will say, you know, nothing has changed uh, as, as far as the detainee is concerned. There's been no radical change in circumstances. Uh, they're no less a flight risk than they were last month. But you're not able to give me any more concrete information about when this is going to end. And now this has been going on too long, and now we're going to release on conditions. How does this work on the ground? This is what I'm having trouble with. The minister has met the first test, so now we're into these other factors under the regulations. I would have thought the onus would be on the detainee to demonstrate that there has been a failure, that the detention has been too long, uh, uh, not properly explained, etc. And then the minister would come back and say, no, 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 um, we can't explain and, and here's what's happened. Are you telling me that at all these hearings, every time, even if the detainee doesn't raise this, the minister has to bring evidence forward to show that the last 30 days there's a reason for the delay and it's explained and so on? Is that what you're telling me? That, if you look at the transcripts that we've, we've um, included in the condensed book, you'll see that that's what happens. Um, the, the board will it's say... It's not a question of what happens. I want to know whether that's the law. I want to know whose onus it is at that point. And, and the court, the federal court has said the onus is on the minister. Even though it's not raised by the, the, the detainee? No, because those are the factors that the board has to consider every time. So and the minister has to go through each of those every time, does he or she? It, it will depend on the circumstances of the case, whether there's anything to say about it. You know, if it's a seven-day review, there's probably not going to be anything said about it, other than, you know, we're, we're waiting for this know, document to come. What I want to know, and I, I agree with you, you know, in 30 days, not much could happen. I want to know what happens at the 16-month or the 18-month, and whether or not there is a shift just because of the length itself. 
yes. where the minister has to somehow come forward and justify what on its face looks like a never-ending tension. Yes. Now, just show me where that is. And is. I don't have it right at my fingertips right now, but there is uh, one of the decisions, which I believe is cited in our factum, and I can find it for you, um, where the court says, as time progresses, the burden becomes heavier to, deter, to, to establish that the length of detention is justified which is the opposite of what some of the courts have said on these habeas corpus applications, that it becomes um, impossible for the detainee the longer that time goes on. But the courts have made clear that the, um, the burden on the minister increases as time goes on. So yes, that is something that the courts have said, and I, I will find it for you. I just don't have it at the tip of my fingers. And if you think you've answered it, I, I just wouldn't mind some clarity yeah. on it. 248 of the regulation came into effect as a result of the CN decision, Justice Rothstein's decision, or did it? I, I don't know that it, it certainly reflects his decision there, whether it came in as a result, I'm not sure, but yes. And after the yes. decision, which said, here's how you make uh, the process charter compliant, yes. section seven. Yes. Can you tell me what difference, if any, you see between the 248 factors and the factors under habeas, other than the burden? Just nail that down for me. Well, the difference is, at least as, as the Ontario and Alberta Court of Appeal have applied it, is that on habeas, the only thing the court is going to look at is um, whether the decision is reasonable on the basis of its length and duration. There may be other reasons that uh, the decision is unreasonable, um, and, and those on a federal court judicial review, those broader reasons would be looked at. So, you know, the, the, the review in federal court and what the board has to take into account at first instance certainly goes beyond the, the issue that the courts have identified they may exercise their discretion to look at on habeas corpus. But as far as when you're looking at that kind of decision, when that's the, the issue that the detainee is alleging, is that the detention is just too long and an uncertain duration, it comes back to what I was saying before, that what the court on a habeas corpus is doing is looking at the decision that uh, is the basis for the detention, whether that exists, and if it does, whether it's reasonable. Okay, thank you. Can I come so back at you a little bit? Oh. Sorry. Go ahead. Mine's on a different point, so why don't, if it's, why don't you continue that then? I just want to come back to Onus for a moment, if I can, mm -hmm. because I may have misappreciated this, but Justice Rulo, in the seminal case on this, says that. <clears throat> The IRP scheme does not place the onus on the minister when the detention has become illegal due to its length and uncertain duration. Uh, the minister need only satisfy one of the listed criteria in 58 
to shift the onus to the detainee. The minister need not explain or justify the length of detention and its uncertain duration. He observed that the minister can satisfy the onus simply by relying on the reasons given at the prior detention hearing. He said that although the IRPA provides that each detention review requires a fresh determination as to whether the detention should continue and that prior decisions are not binding, it's apparent that in practice each hearing is not truly a de novo hearing. This is because each detention review must take into consideration all existing factors related to custody, which include the reasons for the prior detention orders. And first of all, do you disagree with what he's saying there? Yes. You do disagree with that. Okay. So you've got some other authorities that says otherwise. Is that the idea? Yes. Right. Yes. So the, I mean, the federal, as I said, the federal court's been right. very clear that the burden remains on the minister. So then we have a conflict then in terms of how Justice Rulo sees this scheme and how the federal court sees this scheme, and we have the same conflict with the Alberta court. Is that the idea? Yes. Okay. Now, just one more, and then I'm going to leave you alone. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things that is put against you in terms of onus is in the context of uh, judicial review, where on judicial review, the onus is on the applicant to show that the decision below, the decision of the board was unreasonable, whereas in habeas corpus, once it is established that there is an issue that may, that may um, uh, show that the detention, I still keep thinking of habeas corpus as the detention as being unlawful, but yes. clearly unreasonable, I guess, would be unlawful. Exactly. Right. Uh, then, then the onus is on the government to establish the lawfulness or reasonableness. Now, is that right? Yes, that is correct. Right. So uh, that there the scheme, are then, so that the scheme on judicial review, and there may be other reasons, leave applicate, having to get leave and so on and so forth, no automatic right of appeal to the Federal Court of Appeal, whereas you'd have an automatic right on habeas corpus. The scheme is not as favorable potentially on that aspect to the individual detainee as habeas corpus. Well, I have a couple of points on, on that. First of all, um, when this court in May and Ferndale recognize the situations in which a court should decline habeas corpus uh, jurisdiction. It gave two, two examples. One is in the criminal context where there's an appeal right. In that context, on appeal, the accused bears the burden. Uh, so the fact that once you get to the federal court level, the burden is on uh, the, the detainee is no different than the other uh, exceptions that this court has recognized. The first level of review is the board, and there, just as in the trial in the criminal matter, the burden is on the Crown. So it's no different than the exceptions this court recognized. Also, the, the Peru exception, in the specific facts of that case, the review was also in exactly the same way to the federal court with the leave. There, that was an attack review. on the substantive immigration order. It wasn't a, an attack, a per se attack, on the lawfulness of the detention. 
No, but the same is true, for example, in the bail situation. Habeas corpus is not permitted. No, we have a scheme called bail. We and have we have a scheme. Bail. We have a scheme here called the ERPA. Yeah. I, I so in, in that. both situations, uh, habeas corpus is precluded because there is a scheme, despite the fact that at points during that scheme, the burden shifts to the detainee. It may well be that there are a number of factors that show that habeas corpus is more favorable when all you're doing is attacking the lawfulness of the order than the scheme. That's what this, that's what this is all about, it seems to me. And you're trying to demonstrate that the immigration scheme is equal or better. There's really no difference. And yet you have two appellate courts now saying there are not, not only are there differences, there are multiple differences. But you seem to say that the immigration scheme is just bang on, there's no... And, know, and I say that those courts misunderstood the nature of habeas corpus because they referred to this ability to review the detention de novo, which in my submission habeas corpus has never been and is not. And, and they misunderstood um, the nature of the ERPA scheme you better, and sorry, where you the better, burdens are. You better take me to where the Court of Appeal of Ontario and the Court of Appeal of Alberta misinterpreted what habeas corpus is all about because I well, must have missed it. For example, at paragraph 56 of the Court of Appeal decision in this case, and it's in the condensed book if, at, the, at tab 21 if that's the easiest place. Page, please. It's uh, page 11 of the decision, paragraph 56. The court says, a habeas corpus application is considered afresh if the detainee raises a legitimate basis to question the detention's illegality, the onus is on the minister to justify the detention in law. This is a significant advantage of the habeas corpus process. So it's, it's that first line that the habeas corpus application is considered afresh. It, it's not a de novo consideration of the legality of the detention. The, the detainee has several hurdles to pass to get the hearing. The point is, is that once the detainee establishes those things, you have a superior court judge right there uh, assessing, and the onus is on the minister at that point to assess whether or not the detention is lawful or reasonable, whatever you want to call it, okay? In the immigration scheme, before you get in front of a superior court judge, i.e. a federal court judge, um, uh, you have, I mean, when you, when you are before that judge, you have the onus of establishing that the decision was unreasonable. Yes. Is that right? That's correct. Right. And you don't see that as a difference? It's, it's, it's a difference, but it's not a difference that warrants the court recognizing habeas corpus jurisdiction in this situation. In the same way, that difference is not a reason for the court to recognize habeas corpus 
uh, jurisdiction for the review of bail. That onus issue is there as well. And yet this court has made very clear habeas corpus is not available to review the denial of bail. And in that situation, there's not a review every 30 days and the ability to um, judicially review it to the federal court. And yet the court has found that you don't replace that system with habeas corpus. Well, that's been constitutionally decided, right? I'm not sure what you mean by constitutionally the, decided. The, the onus on a review is on the accused. That's been assessed, hasn't it, constitutionally? I believe so, yes. Um, and, and the ERPA scheme has also been reviewed and found to be constitutional. Is the constitutionality of the effects of a decision. The scheme and the effects are different things. So this is an old they, debate between us. They now. can be. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to get to your question. It's, it's not related to what's been discussed, but I want to come back to the question that was put to you by Justice Abella about what if there is evidence that there are systemic problems. And um, you referred to the audit saying that um, this was about 14 individuals and tens of thousands. I'm wondering where you get that number. I look at page 9, and uh, it suggests that it was 3,557 individuals and that there were 18 people chosen randomly who had been in detention for more than 100 days. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It was 18, not 14. I got that mixed but up. But how about the tens of thousands so and I the 3,500? Yeah, I have... Um, that so seems if to be you look at page 10 yeah. of the audit report, and, and, and the plural may have been an exaggeration. I was remembering incorrectly. It, um, on page 10, there's, uh, there are statistics, and it provides that in 2017, there were 11,061 detention review hearings. But you were comparing apples and oranges because those 18 detainees had hundreds of hearings. Um, so well, not hundreds, but well, whatever it they, is, they, yeah. they had multiple hearings. Yes. So there were, if we look at uh, individuals, there were, and this comes from um, page 105 of the response to the new evidence, which is the affidavit that was filed by the appellant. And there's statistics on numbers there, and I apologize, it's, it's, it's thousands, not tens of thousands, but um, these are just release decisions. So, for example, in 2017-18, um, there were 3,200 uh, individuals released prior to, within 90 days of detention. There were a further... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, 2,081 released within three to nine days, 2,138 released within 10 to 39 days, 767 released within 40 to 90 days. So those are individuals, those aren't hearings. So in terms of the hearings, I thought it was something over 300 for the 18 individuals. 
I, and I then, think all so combined, that, so, that sounds okay. familiar, I yes. wanted to give you a chance to explain that. Yes, yes. So, yes, there are, um, there are over 10,000 detention reviews a year. Some of those are multiple for one people, but for one person, but the vast majority of them <clears throat> are detentions where there are not a lot of reviews. And the 3,500 is the number of individuals in detention from page nine there yes. the audit. All right, thank you very much. If I could just have 30 seconds to, to sum up what seconds. I was saying. Um, this court made clear that where there's a complete comprehensive and expert regime, superior courts should decline habeas corpus jurisdiction. It's difficult to imagine a scheme which is more complete, comprehensive, and expert than the IRPA regime. And in my submission, if that regime does not meet the test that this court set out for the exception in May versus Ferndale, there will never be a scheme that does. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Chief Justice, Justices, um, I would like uh, just to give a brief overview of some of the facts which is important in this case. I will not dwell on uh, any of that. Uh, Mr. Chino was a citizen of Pakistan. He belonged to a minority religion, the Ahmadis, and he came to Canada to seek protection uh, under the uh, refugee protection regime. He was initially accepted as a refugee. He used his own valid legal passport and his own identity. Subsequent, when he applied for permanent residency, uh, immigration found out about other identities uh, and passports that were used in Germany and the decision of the Refugee Board was vacated. Um, the, Mr. Chino did um, go through the detention review process and raised at, at least three occasions extensive uh, release plans to the Immigration Division. Um, some of them had conditions which was 17 points long. Those were not acceptable to the minister. I would just briefly like to refer to the external audit that uh, my colleague referred to. Um, I know that this is a matter that still needs to be decided and my colleague, uh, Ms. Jackman, that will argue, part of our arguments will address that 
I would just like to, to uh, mention that there were certain points identified in that report as being concerns of hearings uh, before the Immigration Division. And my colleague was correct. There are thousands of immigration detentions, but the problem lies not with the thousands, but with those few which are in long-term detention without an end in sight. And those ones are the ones that wants to utilize a bias corpus to the effect to show and uh, acquire release. The detention starts uh, with section 55 where an officer will have reasonable grounds to detain the person and thereafter we have the detention review process um, that's, is, take, that takes place in terms of section 57. What is actually important to note here, Justices, is that it is not the lawfulness of detention that it's been considered by the members. It is only the reasons for detention that are reviewed. And that can be found in section 57, which clearly states that um, it is only the reasons for review. I can take you to that. It is in our condensed book uh, on page 34, where it clearly states that the Immigration Division must review the reasons for continued detention. And that is one of the big differences between the Immigration Division review and the Federal Court judicial review process and obeyes corpus. I will come back to that. Um, we have heard from the Attorney General regarding uh, Thanabala Singham case where according to us, the, the court clearly stated that although the idea exists that the board member should look afresh at the evidence before them, the court there clearly states that the hearings are, no, are not de novo. They are not de novo. They don't look afresh at the facts. They will actually refer sometimes and most of the times to the previous decisions made by the previous by the, by the members in the previous um, hearings. Briefly, the judicial review in the federal court, sir, that is a judicial review. One of the concerns there is that it's a review of a single decision of a member. You can have the situation that there, with the 30-day review, there are multiple decisions which become moot and is complicating then the judicial review. While these applications, according to the Federal Courts Act, is being dealt uh, summarily, it takes, according to the rules, if everything goes well, 85 days to get in front of a judge. Uh, and that is if you manage to get 
past the first stage, which is the application for leave. The, the application for leave stage is problematic in the sense that you get no reasons, you just get one sentence, you have no idea why it was refused. The Attorney General also mentioned in, in their factum uh, the fact of the Federal Court of Appeal uh, that uh, questions can be referred to the Federal Court of Appeal. But we have a recent decision uh, that stated that a question can only be referred if it's raised an issue of broad significance or general importance and transcends the interest of parties. It is the respondent's position that where the illegality of detention is in question, it will be very difficult to meet that standard. To come back to the case before us very briefly, which uh, is uh, important to understand the context, in the Alberta Court of Appeal, we don't have a bias corpus act. The bias corpus uh, regime is included in the Queen's Bench rules of the court and what making it more difficult, it's included under a heading judicial review. Um, it took quite some time to convince the court clerks that yes, an uh, immigration detainee can come to you and do a bias corpus. Uh, just an explanation of that. Can, Mr. Bree, can I ask you, um, how does a potential charter violation due to indefinite duration actually come before the board? What does this look like? Is it the minister who raises it? Is it the, the, the detainee? Is it the board itself? Do you have to file a charter notice? Justice, if I understand you, you asking whether when, if, if, if a habeas corpus is brought bef before a member of the board. Right. They don't have jurisdiction to review habeas corpus. No, but if you're, if, if, not habeas corpus, but you're just simply challenging, when, when, when you're up on your 30-day review and you're going to make the argument that your friend says has to be made there and nowhere else, what does that look like to you? Do you give a charter notice? There, Justice, this is the important difference that my colleague did not uh, bring to the court. We have the difference between, in May this court clearly explained the two exceptions. And at the end of the second exception referring to immigration, there's a word, administrative decisions. And here we have the immigration and uh, the immigration detention division that is doing immigration decisions. We have under the habeas corpus, it's a charter right, which cannot do. So at the uh, immigration division level, all that you can do is to argue and say that the 
evidence that was provided by the minister is not, reason is not reasonable and that they didn't prove that their actions was reasonable in terms of the act. Is it, is it your position then, just following up on that, that they are not following Justice Rothstein's decision in Sehan, which says they are obliged to consider charter issues when they are uh, determining these cases? Justice, they are definitely following that. They are definitely following that. But we need to understand the distinction between the constitutionality of an immigration decision and a charter right, which is what a bias corpus is. If, we, if, if, for example, the immigration division in that case does not make a decision or that complies with the charter, in that case, you can then go to the federal court, which has jurisdiction, in that case concurrent jurisdiction, to look at the unconstitutionality of the administration decision or the act of the officer. And I just want to be clear, in, in Justice Rothstein's case, it was a question of whether Section 7 and 12 were properly taken into account by the decision maker. Are you saying that habeas is a different kind of consideration and that the board cannot take into account the same factors that are provided by the charter when dealing with the lawfulness of a detention? I guess I'm not, I if, if Roth's, Justice Rothstein's decision is applicable and followed, then it seems to me the line isn't quite as clear as, as you seem to suggest, that it's either this or, or that. Ma'am, I, uh, Justice, I will, I will answer your question by just coming back and, and saying that we have a, uh, a regime, we have concurrent jurisdiction between the federal court and superior courts in certain instances. That is where an administrative decision or a administrative act of an officer is uh, illegal. The person has the right to either go to the superior court or the federal court. In that case, we have the courts that said, in that case, the superior court has the discretion to say, I decline my jurisdiction, and I'm not going to hear this case. You should go to the federal court. In a bias, in a, a bias corpus application, it is a constitutional right, and we should remember that the federal court explicitly does not have a bias corpus jurisdiction, except in maritime cases. So Parliament intentionally excluded a bias corpus jurisdiction from the federal court for a reason known and to them at that time. But that is very important that they excluded it. And we are then saying that the jurisdiction lies with the Superior Court in, in Canada to review the 
Is there a decision other than Chowdhury which says that? The case will... Justice, I can refer to um, the last case of Ogyamin is a case... The Court of Appeal? Yes, that is... A... 2008, that's where Justice Morris had said that he found that paragraph 40 of May was binding. That's correct. So I, what do you have to say about, that's why I'm wondering, the position you're advancing is found in Chowdhury and this Alberta Court of Appeal decision, but is it found anywhere else? Not, not to my knowledge. There's no any so other... So this is new, this would be a change from our Supreme Court jurisprudence? I would not say that, uh, Justice. Our uh, point of view is that if we start off with the decision of this court in May, who gave the history of habeas corpus and also the limited um, limitations on habeas corpus, and then it also referred to the two exceptions in Peru, and what we should understand is that that second exception referring to immigration has the words, have the words, an administrative decision. And an abeyus corpus application is a charter right. It is not an administrative decision that's being challenged. So let me take you, because this is something that's weighing on me. When I look at May and, the, and Pringle and Riza uh, and Peru, the line in May um, that Justice Morissette referred to in his Quebec Court of Appeal decision is conclusory. Thus, it can be seen from these cases that in matters of immigration law, which includes immigration detention, I think you'd have to agree, because Parliament has put in place a complete, comprehensive, and ex expert statutory scheme which provides for a review at least as broad as that available by habeas corpus and no less advantageous habeas corpus is precluded. Now that's not if, that says it does present something which is at least as available in terms of rights granting as habeas. How do we, what do we do about that conclusion? Justice, I would like to submit that we should remember that in Reza, well, maybe, I mean, Reza is paragraph 40, but it starts at 39 and it explains that it's a limitation to the scope of habeas corpus. So I would appreciate your help in saying, in asking you to, to tell us whether you're asking us to change that precedent and say it isn't an exception, it's a concurrent jurisdiction? It is, it is the respondent's position that when there's an administrative act or a decision, then there are concurrent jurisdiction between the federal court and the superior courts. Asking, where do I find that other than Chowdhury? 
I can, Justice, if I can maybe uh, take you uh, just to the following, that we have uh, the situation that the federal courts was created by, for the better administration of the laws of Canada, section 101 courts, which they are referred to. Um, we, we also have the federal courts, which has no plenary jurisdiction over constitutional matters. Although they can consider constitutionality of an administrative act or administrative decision. That is different than the challenge that Mr. China brought in terms of a charter right. Those are two different issues. The one is an administrative decision or an administrative act that you have concurrent jurisdiction between the federal court and the superior courts, and in a charter right, there is no choice. I thought that was rejected in Reza. Just as that was uh, after Reza, there was a decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal, and I cannot remember the decision at this moment. Um, and I will have to end my answer on that, uh, Justice, and I know that uh, Ms. Jackman will assist in this answering this question. I, I... <laughs> I would like to maybe move forward um, and just show that um, the, the exceptions that was created in May, we should also remember that it was, immigration was not the core issue in those cases. Um, immigration was the core issue, it was the tensions was not the core issue. Um, in, in Peru, a, uh, a challenge was launched uh, to the removal as well as a refugee hearing and which also led to detention and she was detained. It is the respondent's position that uh, there are no justification in limiting a constitutional right of an immigration detainee to utilize section 10 um, if his detention is illegal and then with the consequence to be released. Justices, subject to any other questions, I will want to change to Ms. Jackman at this moment. Thank you. to pick up on what you had said, Justice Abella, about RESA, because I think 
if you look at the way the case law is developed, I do think there's problems with it. First of all, Pringle and Fraser was a concurrent jurisdiction issue. He could go to the Ontario court, which they had traditionally done on certiorari, until the federal court was created in 1970. So Pringle was trying to go back to the Ontario court to seek a remedy that had always been available to immigrants. Instead, the government had passed the Immigration Appeal Board Act in 1967, gave that board, made it a statutory court, gave it plenary jurisdiction to address equitable grounds. Pringle just didn't want to wait because it was going to take longer to get before that board. So this court said, in terms of concurrent jurisdiction, Parliament's spoken. They've told you to go use the federal, federal process. And so that's what he was stuck with. RASA was the same issue. RASA was seeking declaratory relief, challenging the leave provisions, if you remember. Unfortunately, I've been on too many of these cases. <laughs> I sort of feel like now's my time to vindicate all the ones I've lost in the past <laughs> that, that are now before this court. But in any event, RASA was a choice between, between going to federal court. He could have gone to federal court and said, I don't like the leave provisions. I don't like the fact that I'm being deported. This is all unconstitutional. Or he could go to the Ontario court. Both places had concurrent jurisdiction because the federal court's a, a court for the better administration of the laws of Canada, and we were dealing with federal laws. And this court said, again, Parliament's chosen. They adopted Justice Abello's reasons in the Court of Appeal and uh, said, go to the federal court, you can't come here. Peru was really a disguised, um, a collateral attack on an immigration decision. She was seeking to challenge the credible basis, um, finding in her case that led to her deportation. Because the leave provisions were at that point only in place for about five months, but they were, they'd come in in January of 89, I think, and she brought her challenge in May of 89. Um, and didn't really, I mean, she, she did make the leave application and she sought habeas corpus on the grounds that habeas corpus would be a more direct way to challenge the status determination that she'd lost. And this court said, or this court didn't, the Court of Appeal for Ontario said, look, there's a complete comprehensive expert regime that deals with immigration status decisions with immigration matters. Peru wasn't detained when her case came before the court, and Peru had leave already in the federal court before, um, before the Court of Appeal for Ontario considered the case. So she was fine in that sense. This is the first time the court's been asked to address the issue of detention. And if you look at May and Ferndale and Kayla, and the, the cases before, like I think this is the third case in a trilogy. May, Ferndale, and Gina, it should be, in my submission. Um, the same as Moran and Cardinal and Miller. Um, it, this is the, the last sort of piece in the puzzle in terms of, of what rights people have on habeas corpus. But you characterize it as this is the first time we've dealt with detention, but every time habeas is raised, that's detention. No, so, I meant immigration detention, sorry. Immigration detention. It's the first time it's come squarely before you where a person's detained under immigration legislation. Is it the detention or is it the constitutionality of the detention? I think it's the lawfulness of the detention that's before the court, and that's the other issue. Okay. I, I, I think that there's two things that come out of the, the case law. One is, um, some of the cases speak about the fact that there's a comprehensive regime, May, May does in fact, 
a comprehensive expert regime in immigration cases to address administrative decisions. That's what Mr. Um, Breed was talking about. When you go on habeas corpus in these cases, it's much more like steel. And I think you, the question you were asking, um, Justice Brown, uh, about, uh, about what's happening there um, is really answered by Steele. The, the process was legal in Steele. He, he was detained for a long period of time. It was found to be cruel. And while the reasoning, of, I mean, the court in Obiter says you shouldn't have come on habeas, and that's no longer good law, the facts of the case are very similar to this. He wasn't challenging a decision that was made to detain him. He was challenging the record over a, a period of time, a long period of time. And that's, what hap that's what's been happening on these cases. We come to court, they don't look at the individual immigration division members' decisions. They look at the whole context in terms of how long the person's been there, like Ojiman, for example. Live witnesses were called, the government had to come and show on the habeas why to justify the detention. And at the end, the Superior Court judge found it wasn't justified. There wasn't a, a, a proportionate reason to keep him detained, and so his constitutional rights were being violated. Um, so I, I think that that's what habeas gives you, is the opportunity to look at the detention itself in the context of the legislation to decide, are your charter rights breached? And I do think it's a charter rights issue. There may be occasions where you say you don't have the, the argument is you don't have the statutory authority or something like that, but most of these cases are, are really um, charter cases. What do you say to your friend's point that the charter is equally relevant in front of the immigration boards and then on review if in fact uh, the reviewing court is um, believes that your charter rights have been violated or charter values or whatever they're looking at at that point, they will find it's unreasonable, so everything's beautiful. But you see, it's, it's not a direct challenge in, in the, you go before the immigration division, you, could, you ask the question about can you raise a charter issue there, of course you can. Um, but if you're going to try and strike legislation, you have to give notice. If you're asking them, if you're just saying it's indefinite, it's gone on too long, you don't have to give notice because that's just the application of the act and you're not challenging the legislation. But you're saying in these circumstances, you can take that up. And what the federal court can say is, um, all right, it, it looks like it's unreasonable and send it back. They can't release. That's why, that's the, the other point that I really wanted to make today is the case law keeps talking about concurrent jurisdiction. There is nothing concurrent between habeas and the federal court in this sense. On a habeas application, the court can release. The federal court can't do that. So it's not concurrent. It's not the same kind of remedy like RESA. Play this through though for me. I don't understand. The federal court says it's unreasonable, sends it back. Right. Now what happens? Then the immigration division official will have to decide whether or not um, in the circumstances the person should be released. And in some cases, I've never seen a case like that, by the way, where the federal court said the detention was too lengthy and unreasonable and it resulted in a release. Maybe there's some decision somewhere, but um, it's not a common practice. So it's still up in the air and we don't know, you've got a federal court saying it was unreasonable, but we don't know if the person will be released, right. And what would the factors be that the 
board would take into account at that point in the they face. They look at the Section 248 factors. And you see, I, I think what happened that is... Would lead, that would lead to another hearing. Yes, it is another hearing division. before the Immigration Division. And I think if you look like in Sharkawi, in the materials, Sahin I don't think got put in the materials, but it's cited in Sharkawi. And what Justice Rothstein was doing there was saying, look, you have to look at these it's not in our condensed book because I didn't know I was going to refer to it, but it's tab 14 of the Respondent's Book of Authorities and it's paragraph 108. What he said, what Justice Rodstein said in Sahin, it's quoted there, is that the, the list isn't exhaustive of all the considerations um, and the weight placed upon them will depend on the circumstances. He wasn't considering section 248. He wasn't anticipating that the government would then incorporate them in and make them all equal because that's what they've become. What he was saying in Sahin is, look, some of these factors may be determinative, like steel, that this has gone on too long, it's a lengthy and uncertain one, and you should be released. So it became the factors in Section 248, but now it's, every, it's, all, it's just one of a number of factors. And the, the whole thing about the weight to be placed on one as opposed to another is missing. But help me out on this, if you could, please, because I'm just, I find this really quite confusing. Let's assume that when they're going through the factors under 248 or whatever it is, that the person is found to be dangerous and a flight risk, okay? but that the detention has been unduly long and whatever, delayed and so on. Um, play that scenario out for me, and then give me the same scenario on a habeas corpus where is the judge on the habeas corpus entitled to look to dangerousness, flight risk, and assessing whether or not a remedy will be granted if, in fact, there is a breach of the person's seven and nine rights? I just need that be. Okay, my understanding in, in terms of the immigration division where the detention has become sort of uncertain and indeterminate is that's one of a number of factors. So the, the immigration division officials do say, yes, it's, it's unduly lengthy, but really here you're a danger to the public, we're not releasing you. And, and it continues, it, like steel, it continues that you continue to be The detained. onus would be on the detainee in that point if he wanted to judicially review it to show that that's an unreasonable decision. Is yes. that right? Yes. Okay. And with the range of now play it out in the habeas corpus scenario. I've only done a couple actual merits ones. I think you've probably done a lot more than I have, Justice Muldiver. <laughs> Don't presume work. that. <laughs> but my understanding is that if it was indeterminate and uncertain, there would be a finding that it's unlawful, and the court would impose conditions, and the conditions would be designed to control the person so that the dangerousness or whatever is reduced. And by the way, one of the points I was going to make is, you know, it, it's such a difference doing habeas. There's a bus that brings a person to the court. And if there's a release order, they can report to the local police station. They don't have to go from Scarborough over to Mississauga to report to immigration. Like, there's just so many little elements of it that, that aren't properly part of legal argument, maybe, but really make a difference in terms of the difference between habeas corpus and a judicial review. Even the fact that you can call witnesses makes a difference. If I've heard difference. you right, if I've heard you right, if there's a breach of seven or nine 
on the habeas corpus, the judge must release. My understanding is the, the person has to be released and they craft conditions to control but, the concerns. So are you saying then that we exclude any Section 1-like considerations in this analysis? Well, I know that we raised it as reinforcing the reason why you should have uh, habeas corpus because it doesn't seem to have ever really been addressed in any of the cases. May and Ferndale or Moran, or, it's never really been talked about. There's one case where it was talked about. That's Baroud. None of us mentioned it, but I lost it um, in the Court of Appeal for Ontario in front of Justice Carthy. And um, he said that, that, that because Baroud was a security certificate case, so the federal court judge could release him. It was the, the, I mean, it was like the appeal system. The judge could release, looking at the decision of the minister, will I release this a person, uh, a security threat? And he said section, it's, it's self-evident that section one is, apl applies in that case because the judge can release like in a criminal appeal. That's the only case I know where section one has ever been mentioned. And I don't know why we left it out of our argument. It's not the same situation as the immigration division and federal court review because it was a federal court judge as the judge of first instance releasing the person like Sharkawi. It was the Sharkawi instance. Um, but I don't think section one's been dealt with really. But I, I, nobody's put forward a justification for denying section 10 rights. The, the minister hasn't. The Attorney General hasn't. So let me, can I take you back to CN? Because I'm fascinated between the difference that you're suggesting takes place in the Superior Court and what Justice Rothstein said takes place before the adjudicator. So he says an adjudicator must have regard to whether continued detention accords with the principles of fundamental justice under Section 7. And then goes on to explain how that should take place, what those factors are. That was followed by, I gather, uh, Regulation 248, which set those factors out in legislation. Right. So the Section 7 factors, uh, continued de detention accords with principles of fundamental justice, that is an obligation put into the scheme, which is accepted, I think. Um, going back to Pringle, where Justice Laskin said the scheme reads out certiorari and habeas and following a line. Well, Pringle was not a habeas case. It was certiorari, but he mentions uh, that habeas is exactly the same and the scheme can oust it. Okay. Uh, and but, I'm looking at page 32 of his decision. So my, I mean, when you say we haven't dealt with habeas or detention, we have in all of those cases dealt with it and said that the scheme gives as much to um, a detainee as they would get under habeas. So I, I, you've made one point, which is the practice at the federal court is that you don't get released even though it's unreasonable. You have to go back. It's not a practice. It's, they it's, can't release. They can't. they can't order. Are there others? In terms of the federal court, the reasonableness standard is, one of, is a big one. They're, they're looking at a single decision, so you have a decision, is that decision reasonable? Look at the Brusesi case, it's in the materials, six, five or six times. He, had to, he reviewed the most recent of the two decisions. By the time it got to federal court, we were reviewing five or six decisions. But we said in Kayla that reasonableness is the standard you apply on habeas to. On a decision. 
But it's when you go on habeas, you're not going on the decision, you're going on the record like in Steele. But the record includes the decision. 10 decisions, 20 decisions, 30 decisions. Right, but they look at the decision. You no, can't. they don't. And to be honest, they don't. Habeas? And the habeas, you don't look at the decision to decide Kayla whether or not? If it's Kayla or May and it's a single decision on classification, they look at the decision. If it's Ogeman or it's um, China, there's 20 decisions. They look at the justification for the detention. In the abstract? It, 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 you know, she, the judge in Ogeman didn't, the Superior Court judge didn't go reading through all those decisions. She looked at, is this proportionate? Is this detention, given how long it's gone on, a proportionate detention given his character, the circumstances, what the government says about it? That's a completely different kind of process. The, the, like I said, the only case that's close to hit is Steele, where it's a record that left the person with, cruel, with being subjected to cruel punishment. And in these cases, these long-term detention cases, it's the record, the whole record, which you can do on habeas. You can't do it in federal court. You're out of time on the first 30 of them. You're, and then you have to keep filing serial applications in order to not moot yourself out. So I, I take it your position comes down to our jurisprudence, which says exclusive jurisdiction with the same rights, should be reconsidered in light of the fact that the process isn't working as well as it's supposed to. Yes, and in fact, I, there's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, in May, at paragraph 29, you reference um, Justice Ledane and Miller, that Parliament made, it, made a conscious decision to not put habeas corpus into the federal court system. The Federal Court Act was only given habeas jurisdiction over the armed forces. That's important because it means that there's no, I, I mean, Section 10 applies. You're applying a char two charter rights, the right of access and the right to release. There's two there. And those can only really be taken away if it's justified in a free and democratic society. This court, th this situation is no different than May and Kayla, where habeas has not been given to the federal court. Um, Sorry, but look at paragraphs 39 and 40 of May. Tell me what wiggle room there is in, in that. 40 is RASA. It's a choice. Of, it's concurrent. And these are called recognized exceptions. Recognized exceptions is a status determination, like Peru, where you're challenging an immigration matter, a decision on her status in Canada, like Pringle, like RASA, and like Peru. They were not detention cases. Peru was the only one of the three that was a habeas application. The other two were seeking declaratory relief or seeking certiorari itself without habeas. And those are concurrent jurisdiction cases. And I, I don't have a problem with that. This court ruled you go to, to the federal court on those kind of cases. But habeas is a different thing. And it, there's no concurrent jurisdiction with the federal court. That's what Justice Ledane said in Miller. That's what this court said in May and this court upheld in Kayla. It's not concurrent jurisdiction. So to the extent that, that this court has used Pringle and Raysa as though they were habeas corpus cases, because that's really what's happened, they've been mentioned although they're not habeas cases, I, I think, yes, I'm asking you to change it. It's wrong. In my submission, that's, that's it's really wrong. what I needed to know. So yeah. it's not, you're not distinguishing our jurisprudence. You really are inviting us to change it. Yes, because Thank I you. think it's, it, the, the, it was mixed up. They all got put together okay. when really they're different that's kinds helpful. of cases. That Thank was my concern with that. Um, 
extinguishing an authority rather than overruling an authority. Precisely. I like that better, actually. What, so do I. What, sorry, what precisely are you asking us to overrule? She's not. She's I'm asking not. us to distinguish. <laughs> I'm asking you to find that, a Haiti, uh, that in an immigration detention, um, the, the concurrent jurisdiction principles set out in Resa and Pringle and Fraser are not applicable. That it is a detention um, where there is no, I mean, habeas corpus, there is no concurrent jurisdiction because you can't release anywhere else. The, I know that what my friends are arguing actually is you, you should, they're making two arguments. They're saying that when you look at the expert scheme, you can in fact look at the immigration division official who is an enhanced deportation officer. They, they detain and deport, that's their role. Um, civil servants, that you can compare them to a superior court judge on habeas corpus. So the fact that they can release is equivalent. That's really what their argument is. Does if, that read out Section 58 of the Act? Um, in what way? Well, there's an Act, there's a provision in the Act which is supposed to deal with when you release somebody from detention. Yes. And you're saying that that provision is there, and but what I'm do we do it? And what? And you're saying, but don't use it. Go to habeas. No, no, I'm not saying that at all, Justice DeBell. But, I'm saying when you're doing a comparison in terms of appropriate, uh, in terms of alternate remedies, that it's between courts. You can look at the scheme, but what what they were doing in in May and Ferndale and Kayla was there was an administrative decision made. Here, there was an administrative decision made by an, a civil servant here an enforcement officer, um, and that decision is reviewed by the federal court, or you seek to go on habeas to challenge your detention, or that decision, like in Kayla, you can challenge the reasonableness on habeas corpus as well, if you're just challenging one decision. But you're gonna be mooted out pretty quick, because it's every 30 days. Um, so that, my argument, or my submission is, that you're comparing, when you, you look at May, the May, the five factors in May, you were comparing the federal court to the superior court. You weren't comparing the administrative officer that made the classification decision to say that that was an adequate review. That's what my friend is arguing, that you should look at the officer, the, the decision being reviewed or the, the, the record being reviewed as the equivalent to a superior court judge on habeas corpus. My only point is it's not. You have to look at the federal court and the Ontario Superior Court in that sense. Well, I was trying to get at that a little bit, but and maybe I was all confused, but <laughs> the habeas corpus gets you in front of a Superior Court judge right away. Right away. Right away. Right. And the issue is, is my detention lawful or reasonable or whatever? Yeah. Um, and, and under the other scheme, you don't get in front of a higher court a judge of any sort, but a federal court judge, <clears throat> until such time as you, you still have, you've, you've had a hearing before an immigration officer. Is right. that the idea? Yes. Yeah, just like they so, made the so classification. Just, so run this by me, like what's the big deal there? You go in front of a, an enforcement officer, an immigration division member, and that member decides whether or not to detain or release. 
those go on month after month after month and you finally get tired and say, look, this isn't fair, I shouldn't be detained indefinitely, you're not going to be able to remove me, and you go on habeas corpus. Why, can't you can go, why, why don't you go to the federal court? Well, you can. You can go to federal court, you can apply for leave. You can ask that it be expedited because otherwise it's 85 days before a judge will look at that file to determine if leave should be granted. If leave should be granted, there's, there's 30 to 90 days to hear the application for judicial review. In that period of time, you've already got five other decisions or four other decisions before it comes before a judge and you have to keep filing notices every 30 days and then perfect those records. That's not compared to you, you put an application together and you walk in front of a superior court judge the same day often and they set a time for argument right away. It, it's just not comparable. The other problem with the federal court, and this is in um, tab eight of the condensed book of ours, is, is the reports that have been done consistently. One of the things in Peru, Justice Abella, is, was Justice Katzman's reliance on the fact that the leave provision was no different than the threshold issue for seeking the writ. And what's happened since then, that was five months into the leave provision, and I'm not faulting the federal court judges at all, but there's no requirement to give reasons, and what has happened in the studies that have been done from, I think, the early 90s on through to the present, there's just a recent one from Sean Rehag, a professor at York University, is that the differential is arbitrary. It, it depends on who you get as a judge as to whether or not you're, you're likely to get leave. It's, it's so the, the rate, the first study that was done, the Green study, Justice Pratt never gave leave, Justice Desjardins gave it in 67% of the cases. That differential has more or less stayed the same over the years. That wasn't before Justice Katzman on Peru. But when you're comparing, I'm not saying there's anything, well, I think there's something wrong with that process, but it hasn't come before the courts yet. It was raised in RESA, it was dropped, he got landed, that was the end of that case. Um, and it's never been raised again. But, but when you're comparing it with habeas, you get directly in front of a judge. You don't have to hope that you get a good judge that's one of the judges that gives leave more often. How's the continuing number of orders worked out in the federal court? And we used to see this in the review board decisions sometimes, but what's the practical solution to the order that you have sought judicial review on is no longer in existence? How do, there must be some mechanism to get the right order in front of in, them. In justice, in, in the Brusesi case, which we put in the materials, that's the one I was involved in, when it came before Justice de Montigny, he, he looked at the last two decisions, not the first four. Um, and, and just pick those, because they, they were all really moot, but he, he looked at two of them. Um, so so I, I don't see how you can say in terms of sort of a comparison that that's a, a better system, um, that the federal court process is, they're expert, for sure they're expert, and they're comprehensive in the context of judicial review, but that's all they're doing. Is, that's all they can do, is judicial review. Um, and then, then there's a very big difference too, you've already mentioned it, which is the federal court, even assuming they find that there's problems with your seven and nine rights, they can only send it back for another hearing. Right, they can only send it back. Which may or may not result in the person being released. Right. Is that the idea? Whereas on the habeas corpus, 
if the judge is of the view that the detention is unlawful, there must be a release. Is that that's your position, right? Yes. Well, it says, shall be released. If right. the detention is unlawful, shall be released. The only way you wouldn't release is if there was a Section 1 justification not to release in that individual case. And then you would get into Doré and um, Trinity Western in terms of what's a reasonable um, decision in light of Section 1 of the Charter on an individual case-by-case -case basis, right? Um, so I'm just checking my notes in terms of points. Um, that the, I guess the other point that was important from my friend's argument was they've sort of taken the position that uh, Chowdhury and the Alberta Court of Appeal have set a threshold for access to habeas corpus, that if it's lengthy and uncertain, you get access. If it's not lengthy and uncertain, you don't get access. And some of the judges have been doing that. Section 10 doesn't set a threshold. If, if you meet the, the test, which is do you raise some legitimate ground, um, and this court's characterized that as reasonable, some reasonable ground, or reason, ground that's, that's meets a reasonable standard. Um, you can the writ issues and you can, go, you can proceed with the habeas corpus application. I think that when Chowdhury was decided, there was a confusion because the court was asked to address lengthy, uncertain detention. But Justice Sharp in Ogerman, um, and I sort of figure he should be given some extra weight given his book on habeas corpus. <laughs> He's um, got a lot of experience in it. He indicated that at paragraph 41 of the decision, it's page 112 of the condensed book that we put before you, um, he's indicated that uh, habeas corpus, it, that the, there isn't a threshold, that the only threshold is the one in the charter. He was obliged to follow Chowdhury, though, wasn't he? Um, well, in Ogeman's case, I think they did, the Justice Coates in the Superior Court did find it was lengthy and uncertain. Um, so he did. But he, he said explicitly um, that, uh, he says, I don't accept the AG's contention that habeas corpus will only be available in immigration matters in the case of lengthy uh, um, detention of uncertain duration. So he explicitly rejected that as the threshold. My friend's argument is based on that. And it may be that the Alberta Court of Appeal sort of set it up that way, but they reached the right result. Like they, they did use that threshold, but that's the only threshold, that's the only case that they were asked to decide. They could be, asked, it could be available if a person's in conditions that are cruel and unusual and so on, potentially. Yes. But yes. how do you, what do you say about floodgates and if we go this, we open up the habeas corpus route, what, what, what kind of test would you, limiting test, would you put on the habeas corpus? It's got to be, well, I guess it would just have to be such that you could say it's a breach of seven or nine, which would be pretty. Well, it actually, Section 10 doesn't say breach of seven or nine. It just says unlawful. If it's unlawful in any way, I think that the, the check on it is detention. It's not a disguised judicial review of a, a status decision. Um, like in, in Ogeman, he was challenging the length of his detention. He was also challenging the validity of his deportation order because he said, look, you already used it once. You can't use it a second time. And Justice Sharp said, 
go use go to the federal court if you're going to challenge the validity of your deportation order. You can raise your detention here. You can't raise that. But accepting the detention, it's clear you've got to show you're detained when you right. move for habeas corpus, and then you've got to show that there's somewhat realistic prospect of showing that yes. your detention is unlawful or unreasonable? Yes. And most cases will be lengthy and uncertain detention in the immigration I'm sorry? Context. Most of the cases in the immigration context will be lengthy and uncertain. In the, to answer your question in terms of numbers, Justice Mulder. So that will cut down on the floodgates? Well, we've been able to use, to, to go to the Ontario Superior Court since 2015. There's like six cases that have gone. By far, the vast majority of detainees are released within a couple of months. They're not going to the, uh, the superior courts. Like, it, it, it's in your interest to try and get out in front of the immigration division. It's the cheapest. You come with a better bond signer. There's ways of resolving almost all the cases. It's just this small sort of identity, cases where there's an identity problem or a problem where you can't be sent back to your country even though you have a criminal conviction. Those are the cases that become the difficult cases, and those are the ones where people will, at some point in time, mount a challenge to the continued detention. But I really don't think you need to worry about numbers. But if we say, I'm sorry, so go, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to bring you back to Justice Sharp in paragraph 41. Yes. And you said he said there was no threshold. That's not how I read paragraph 41. I read him saying there is a threshold. The threshold is whether um, there is, um, uh, where is it? Whether there's an alternative remedy that's just as broad and uh, just as advantageous and uh, that it's um, uh, not a collateral attack. Now I've lost where it was, but it's there somewhere. Um. He, he, he does note, yes, of course, he does. He notes, May, where there's a, an appeal or, or other more appropriate route to the court, collateral methods of attack are discouraged. And that's the ones where we're doing collateral attacks on the status of the person, the status finding. Well, that's I'm, what I thought he was talking about in that but reference. Where there's a scheme that's as broad and not as advantageous right. and is not a collateral attack on the immigration right. status, which was Peru. And so he's going back to that as the general principle, which, yes. which was applied in the case of a right. lengthy, duration, uh, lengthy um, detention of uncertain duration. So it's not that he said there's no status. He said it had to come within the Peru exception. Sorry, not that he said there's no threshold, that you, know, uh, you, you always have access to habeas corpus. He said it had to come within the Peru exception. Well, if you look at the bottom, he says, it follows that Chowdhury rests on the general principle that the Superior Court retains its residual jurisdiction to entertain habeas applications, where the ERPA process of review under the supervision of the federal court is less advantageous than habeas, and where releasing the applicant would not alter the immigration status. So what they did is they took jurisdiction on detention, not on immigration status. Peru applies, that's what, my understanding of what he's saying is the Peru reasons apply where, um, where status is at issue. In other words, it's a disguised judicial review. You're really trying to, that's what I did in Peru. We were trying to avoid the leave provisions. So we went to try and review it through habeas corpus 
And the court said, no, you can't do that. I, I, I want to take you back to what you said just before uh, you answered Justice Karakatsanis' question. You said the vast majority of cases are out after one or two months. Right. And the test that's been set out in all of these cases is the scheme is not as advantageous. But if the vast majority of people are let out under the scheme, how can you say the scheme is not as advantageous? It's not, it, it, the thing is, is habeas corpus is there when your detention becomes unlawful. And in a very small, most of, mostly our systems work. But in a very small number of cases, it's, it becomes unlawful, and I'm, you've got to be able to use I habeas. Wanna, I want to stick to the level of principle. We either okay. say there's concurrent jurisdiction or there isn't concurrent jurisdiction. Well, I disagree with you there, Justice Abella. They can't be concurrent. You're the federal saying, court can't release. So there's no jurisdiction? No, federal court has jurisdiction to look at a judicial review of a decision. To detain? Yeah, they can do that. But it's a judicial review of a decision to detain or a decision to deport. That's the scheme. But they can't release. You're saying in most cases the scheme works. Yes, in most cases it does. And that habeas corpus should be restricted to those who are not released early. I don't think there should. I think that habeas corpus is clear on its wording. What it is is you have access to habeas corpus, and if the detention's unlawful, you get released. So you could that, do that. the federal court can't do. Okay. You could do that after one month. Yeah, you could. If we make the decision that goes along with yes. what you're proposing. That's what I wanted to be clear yeah. about. No, so, if someone says, I'm a Canadian citizen, you've got it wrong, you can't detain me, he can go on habeas. Immediately. Yeah, so I think no he scheme, could. Regardless of the scheme. I th he has a right under Section 10. It's, a, it's a, a constitutional right. And unless they can show that there's some justification, you know, if you, if you decide Section 1 comes into play, and, and this is the problem partly with this, is that none of the cases talk about Section 1 except the Baruch case. But if you decide that, that the, the rule of the Peru exception should apply here, I think you should send tell us, let us give notice to the AGs and take written submissions on the applicability of Section 1, because I don't see how the court can expunge a right using Peru when the, the person's pled Section 10 and says, you know, I, I want to access habeas corpus, I, I raise a legitimate ground, my detention's unlawful, I demand being released. You can't just cut that out because you think federal court's there unless it's justified under Section 1. And, and that was the problem. It, it, it apparently wasn't raised in the lower court, but if it becomes an issue, it should be raised. I mean, this court should address it square, squarely. I think my time's no up. Sorry, just, can I just ask one question? Um, you're not bringing a constitutional challenge to Section 58 of the Act, are you? Maybe in another case. <laughs> You don't see this as a collateral attack on the constitutionality no. of Section no. 58. Okay, no. thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. This is uh, Francis Mann.
Chief Justice and Justices, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association intervenes in this case to argue that superior court jurisdiction over habeas corpus both promotes the rule of law and access to justice for detainees. This has been true throughout history and it is true today. A prisoner who's been wrongfully incarcerated does not care about jurisdictional disputes between courts and tribunals. They care about being released from a potentially unlawful detention. But to the prisoner, these jurisdictional disputes can represent a significant barrier to access to justice and to the remedy they seek. And to the broader justice system, jurisdictional disputes have the potential to impact the rule of law where access to justice is diminished and illegal executive action is left unchecked. We've heard arguments from both sides about which forum is better, the Immigration Division or the Superior Court. The BCCLA says, let the prisoner decide. There might be all kinds of reasons why the prisoner would prefer the Immigration Division over the Superior Court and vice versa. Given the importance of the liberty right, what is crucial is ensuring that prisoners in all settings retain this broad access to courts and tribunals to remedy a possible illegal detention. And since the 17th century, the fundamental purpose of this writ has been to, to test arbitrary, illegal executive action and wrongful imprisonment. The writ is inextricably tied to the liberty right and to the rule of law and limits on habeas corpus procedure throughout history have left prisoners without recourse. And in my written argument, paragraphs five and six, I provide an ancient example of Darnell's case, where the courts of King's Bench held that the king did not need to provide any reason for the prisoner's detention. The king's word was good enough. But that is not the world we live in today. And shortly after Darnell's case, the English Parliament decided that that is not the world that the common law legal system wanted to inhabit either. And they enacted the Habeas Corpus Act, which is the basis for our modern habeas corpus procedure today. And this court in Kella, which I say represents the high water mark in habeas corpus jurisprudence, reminds us that developments in the law must remain consistent with the underlying purpose behind the writ. And any jurisprudential developments that impact the access to the writ, therefore, must also remain consistent with this goal. And I submit that the primary procedural hurdle that detainees face is this jurisdictional issue. And as the court in Kellis said, the availability of the writ is more important than any hypothetical issues arising because of concurrent jurisdiction. And respectfully, the Attorney General has not given any example of any issues arising from this concurrent jurisdiction, hypothetical or otherwise. Justice Moldaver, you referred to the possibility of the floodgates opening and I would adopt my colleague Ms. Jackman's argument about what the floodgates would actually look like in the context of immigration detention. But more than that, the superior courts are always empowered to control their own processes and to prevent abuse. And I've cited in my factum a case of the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench dealing with a very enterprising prisoner who was bringing dozens and dozens of habeas applications. They were able to label that prisoner a vexatious applicant 
and to allow him to cross a higher threshold than people would normally need to access. I suppose when we're into the liberty of the subject, it's not really a question of, um, well, if you go the immigration route, may take a little longer. You'll be in custody for another few months than you otherwise would have been had you been able to use the expeditious route of habeas corpus. We ought not to look at it that way, I take it. When the liberty of the subject, when someone is unlawfully detained in this country, they should be able to take advantage of the most expeditious route available to challenge the lawfulness and to get out and not sort of have to fend off an argument that says, well, you could have done this under the other system, but you would have had to stay in custody for another 90 days or 120 days or whatever it might be. Justice Moldaver, I absolutely agree with you. I cannot imagine anything more heinous in our legal system than an illegal detention. There, that infringement of that right cannot be permitted to continue. Subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Much. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. I'm here representing the End Immigration Detention Network, and I'd like to start by acknowledging the former detainees, their family members and friends that are in the court with us, including Ms. Chowdhury, whose case has been central today. I want to highlight that we are here as a direct result of the struggles and sacrifices of migrant detainees across Canada, for whom the right to habeas corpus is a critical component of access to justice. The appellants maintain that the current detention re regime system operates like a well-oiled machine and that any problems with it are related to minor errors or maladministration of the act. This submission, however, ignores two points that I will focus on. So first, the IRPA regime fails to treat length and uncertain duration of detention as primary considerations on review. And second, the detention reviews place an unfair substantive onus on the detainee to provide reasons for release. Because of these legislative deficiencies, the IRPA allows Section 7 charter rights to be trumped by regulatory factors. To illustrate my point, I'll start with an example. So imagine that you've been in administrative detention for one year. By this point, you're walking into approximately your 15th detention review. This is an informal hearing. On one side, you'll see the representative of the minister, and in front of you, you'll see the board member, the person who's making a decision on whether or not your detention will continue. So the minister will start by providing an update to the board, and they say, okay, the CBSA has sent an email to the consulate in your country of origin, but there's no updates on a timeline for your removal. Relying on decisions of your past detention reviews, the minister is seeking your continued detention on the basis that you are a flight risk. The board member will then ask you if you have any new evidence that would permit her to make a different decision. And you say that, yes, I have been detained for another 30 days and I've now been detained for a year in total. You tell the board member that at this point, your detention feels endless. After deliberation, the member tells you that, yes, although your detention has been lengthy, the minister has been diligent in her efforts to remove you and your detention has not become indefinite. She says that she has to consider the length and uncertain duration of your detention against other factors and that you haven't provided any clear and compelling reasons for her to depart from these past decisions. 
Relying on the reasons given by previous members, she orders your continued detention. So this detention review is in full compliance with the requirements of the ERPA regime. The legislation permits the lengthy and uncertain duration of your detention to be swiftly displaced by other considerations in Section 248. So in a practical sense, the ERPA treats the minister's emails as an equivalent to an individual's right to liberty. I'll now briefly address my second point, which uh, Justice Maldaver, you were talking about this morning, which is that the minister is able to discharge her onus by relying solely on previous reasons, reasons given to detain you. So now once that happens and they've made out a prima facie case, the onus is now transferred to you, the detainee, and all you can do is try and emphasize the length of time that you've been detained. And the appellant submits that this is not a substantive burden of proof, but it's the decision to detain often hinges exactly on that, on the detainee's ability to provide new evidence. Conversely, in a habeas corpus application, length and uncertain duration of detention are given primacy. The, Supreme, the Superior Court must consider, but is not burdened by past decisions to detain. They don't have to justify their departure from those decisions. And this makes all the difference to a person detained. Immigration detainees are uniquely vulnerable. They may be fleeing persecution in their country of origin, coming to Canada with trauma, they may have language barriers, and they are often unrepresented at detention reviews. Some may have criminal convictions, but if they are on an immigration hold, they've already served their time. And others may have never transgressed the law, and this is their very first experience with any kind of incarceration or deprivation of liberty. So with this context in mind, the need for habeas corpus in the immigration detention system is even more pronounced. Access to habeas corpus doesn't take away from the existing regime. It increases fairness by providing a critical means for some people to challenge their detention. The cases from the provincial appellate courts show us that although not every detainee will have to turn to habeas corpus for a remedy, for some individuals, like Mr. Ali, who was detained for seven years in a maximum security prison, or Mr. Scotland, who had severe mental health issues that weren't addressed at the immigration division, for them, access to this writ is, is necessary to protect their liberty interests. Ms. Olmsted. Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, the appellant argues that the detention review scheme in ERPA constitutes a complete, comprehensive, and expert statutory scheme. We disagree with this, but even if this court were to presume that the scheme achieves this status, issues of maladministration and errors in decision-making are inevitable, especially in a system as complex as the immigration detention review scheme. And in the context of a decision to detain, only habeas corpus offers an effective remedy to a person who is unlawfully detained. As a direct result of the Superior Court's accepting jurisdiction to review the legality of detention, since Chowdhury was decided by the Ontario Superior Court in 2015, significant problems of maladministration have come to light. And in looking at these cases, it becomes clear as to why the federal court does not provide an effective remedy to these problems. So three individuals have been ordered release in a final decision by the Ontario Superior Courts, finding their detention was no longer lawful. And even if problems existed only in those three cases, it's imperative that those people had access to habeas corpus. 
Mr. Scotland was detained for 17 months, Mr. Ogeman was detained for two years, and Mr. Ali was detained for more than seven years. The problems observed by the courts in these cases weren't simply small, isolated errors made by a member in one decision. There were significant problems that persisted again and again at monthly detention reviews. To highlight some of the most pointed findings, for example, in Mr. Scotland's case, the court found the detention to be Kafkaesque. It found the division improperly relied on CBSA submissions regarding breaches that happened and failed to independently assess the evidence. It found he was detained based on a finding that he was unlikely to appear, which was wholly based on inadvertent and innocuous actions. For example, an inadvertent failure to report on a holiday after a year of reporting and a breach of a bail condition that had actually been varied so it didn't constitute a breach. And similar issues and unreasonable findings were observed by the courts in Ali and Ojeman. And th these are the issues that in part spurred the, the audit of the immigration detention review system and that audit in turn found that these issues were a problem. And that's an important dialogue that has arisen from these habeas corpus cases that might ultimately fix some of these entrenched errors so that people have, have to use habeas corpus less. If a person has access to a 48-hour detention review that is going to properly and fully consider the lawfulness of their detention, they will go there. And it's only where errors and problems in the administration of the act arise, and they inevitably will, that the fundamental problem becomes that the federal court cannot provide a timely and effective remedy. As the respondent mentioned, the federal court cannot order release. It simply sends the decision back to the same tribunal that might have been found to have committed an error or made an unlawful decision or even to be enmeshed in this maladministration and is not required to consider whether the ongoing detention now is lawful. So the guidance it provides to a member who's reconsidering this decision might only be on a single issue. In Mr. Scotland's case, it might have only been on the fact that they misapprehended this fact that he, his bail had been varied. And so that was no longer a proper basis to find him unlikely to appear. And the decision could have been sent back to the Immigration Division for reconsideration. And if another error was made, the detainee is caught up in the same cycle, asking for another judicial review in a loop that doesn't require the reviewing court to consider whether the detention is lawful. Ahmed Ali, a 2015 case which is cited in footnote 45 of CCR's factum, provides an example of this cycle where a detainee finds himself before the federal court on a second review and that decision is found to be unlawful. But the court finds that it's not the role of the court to substitute its own view of a preferred outcome or to reweigh the evidence. And this is particularly problematic because of the length of time that this process takes. In B386 versus Canada, the court found that even with the best of intentions of all concerned, it's impracticable to have an application for leave and judicial review of a detention review decision heard and decided within 30 days. And indeed, the release of Mr. Scotland by the Superior Court was ordered while a judicial review application remained pending before the federal court. And in that case, the minister consented to the release of Mr. Scotland, and yet it remained pending before the federal court who didn't decide the issue before the Superior Court was able to. So for an individual who's wrongly detained, this simply isn't acceptable. And habeas corpus, on the other hand, has a grand purpose against the erosion of a person's right to be free from the wrongful restraints of liberty and is unique in its powers and ability to affect that. Thank you very much. Subodh Bharati.
Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justice. Class, thanks you for this opportunity to provide submissions on behalf of our clients, which include the most vulnerable people with mental health concerns. And there's no question that immigration detention, especially in a maximum security prison, often causes or exacerbates mental issues, mental health concerns. Moreover, individuals with mental health needs are at greater risk of having their detentions prolonged due to A, an inability to advocate for themselves, and B, the need for suitable conditions upon release, for example, rehabilitative programming, therapy, counseling. As such, it is of fundamental importance that not only habeas corpus be available to immigration detainees, but that the Superior Court have the ability to order conditions. And this is what the Court of Appeal in Ojiman found, that there are some cases that occupy a middle ground where unconditional release is inappropriate, but incarceration is not justified. In these cases, the judges would, and I quote, judges would inevitably feel compelled to maintain detention if their only other option was outright release. And so, any limitation on the jurisdiction of the Superior Court to order conditions would effectively bar individuals with mental health issues from habeas relief. It cannot be Parliament's intention that Section 10 of the Charter be not available to the most vulnerable. And the jurisdiction of the Superior Court to release with conditions is supported by Canadian legislation and jurisprudence. The Habeas Corpus Act in Ontario specifically provides Superior Courts with the ability to provide conditions. And post-Chaudhary, many cases in Ontario have had immigration detainees released with conditions. Internationally... Would it be useful for us to clarify, because of course you're right, Ontario statute law provides it. The rules of court in Alberta also provide it, but I'm not sure what else there is across the country. Would it be useful for us to, to, to clarify that as a matter of law, courts may impose conditions, or is it necessary for us to do that? In my submissions, it would be, it would be helpful for this court to clarify as a matter of law. Thank you. And despite the overriding jurisprudence and, and, and what I've just submitted, the appellant argues that court-ordered conditions will cause confusion. And my submission on this is that there is no merit. Section 55 of IRPA provides the CBSA with the jurisdiction to detain somebody on a breach. And it's irrelevant whether the breach is of a condition imposed by a court or of a tribunal. And moving forward, the jurisdiction to order conditions in habeas was also made clear by this court um, in Kayla, and I quote, this remedy, referring to habeas corpus, is crucial to those whose residual liberty has been taken away from them by the state, and this alone suffices to ensure that it's really subject to restrictions. And as we all are aware, Kayla was not used for the circumstances of a release, but of a prison transfer to a less restrictive detention. And this is very important because the appellant so far has focused on whether IRPA is a complete and comprehensive regime equivalent to habeas for detainees seeking release. But there's a second purpose of habeas, and that's not for release, but transfer to a less restrictive detention. For example, seeking transfer out of solitary confinement or from a maximum security to a minimum security, or to a secure mental health facility for treatment, the IRPA has no mechanism at a detention review for which 
uh, detainee can seek this. The only avenue is superior courts. And I won't add to this can because... I, can, uh, I, can I ask you about that? Sure. I know your time is almost up. It's been mentioned a few times. When I look at the Federal Court Act, uh, and I look at 18.3, uh, the power of the court is to order the board to do anything that it's unreasonably refused to do. I, it's not clear to me why they can't order exactly the remedy that you're mentioning. They could. Uh, I guess my argument, and I don't want to, you know, the next intervener will be providing submissions, more full submissions on this. But the point is that at a detention review, the jurisdiction of an immigration division member does not include the where detention takes place. It's only whether detention should occur. So before we even get to federal court, the immigration detainee can, cannot even ask, you know, please take me out. That's, that's not the purpose of immigration detention, or please take me to a, uh, out of solitary confinement. The only way they can do that is to plead to a CBSA officer. Maybe that'll happen. Otherwise, you go to, the only way to do that is to go to superior court. Right. And I don't, you know, my time is up. I just want to add one small, with, with your indulgence, conclusion to Justice, your question about the difference between habeas and federal, habeas versus ERPA versus federal. And there's one other thing that, that this court should keep in mind, that the ability of a detainee to come face to face with a superior court judge in the garb of innocence and plead his case is quite different than the only oral hearing taken place within the confines of a maximum security prison while wearing prison gear, while shackled. Because there is no oral review at a federal court. And clearly, in, in our submissions, these aren't equivalent. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. While the legality of a detention can be assessed based on its length and uncertainty, it can also be assessed in relation to the condition and locations of detention. EGAL is here before you today to address the importance of an effective legal process in rectifying harsh or inhumane conditions that cross into the threshold of illegality. The ability to address such conditions is particularly important to certain demographic groups within the detained population. The LGBTQ population, which EGAL represents, is one of those vulnerable communities. Detention in conditions that risk homophobic abuse, for example, transphobic abuse, detention in conditions which result in the deprivation of necessary medication, these are all among the conditions faced by the detained LGBTQ population in Canada and worldwide. These types of conditions can be illegal even if they are relatively short and of a certain duration. Habeas corpus provides a remedy for illegal conditions and location of detention, but there is no such method of remedying conditions and location of detention under the IRPA statutory scheme. The Immigration Division does not possess the ability to remedy harsh or inhumane illegal conditions of detention. This lack of jurisdiction has been acknowledged by the federal court 
and by the Immigration Division itself. The sole task of the Immigration Division is to determine continued detention or release. In circumstances in which the criteria for detention is met, but the choice of detention facility amounts to cruel or inhumane treatment, the Immigration Division cannot offer a remedy. Its authority is simply that, continued detention or release. And the federal court's reviewing jurisdiction is confined to addressing the reasonableness of the Immigration Division's decision. So again, there's no judicial pathway to addressing harsh conditions of immigration detention at that court. The federal court recently examined the ability of an immigration detainee to challenge illegal conditions and location of detention in the Brown decision. In that decision, Justice Fothergill identified three available recourses to immigration detainees to challenge illegal conditions of detention. So first, the court found that immigration detainees uh, in immigration holding centers could go to the Canada Border Services Agency and, and challenge their detention there. Second, the court found that immigration detainees in provincial correctional facilities could challenge the conditions of their detention with the authorities that govern those, those types of facilities. And finally, the court identified the availability of habeas corpus in provincial superior courts as an effective tool in challenging the illegal conditions of detention. The court, in fact, identified it as one of the three tools necessary in meeting the minimum legal requirements of immigration detention. But if this last tool, the access to habeas corpus, is removed, we would be simply left with challenging the conditions of detention with the authorities who control those conditions in the first place. Relying on the CBSA or the provincial correctional facilities to address harsh, harsh conditions of detention is, in the end, an administrative discretionary process. As we state in our factum, this is akin to relying upon the jailer to remedy the conditions of jail. So taking, for example, the example that we uh, provided in our factum, the transgender woman detained in a male facility, every day that passes involves risks of physical and psychological mistreatment. This is the case for the range of risks faced by the LGBTQ migrant in immigration detention. Habeas corpus offers a timely, effective remedy for these types of harsh conditions and location of detention, and the IRPA statutory system simply does not. So for this reason, we submit that the IRPA regime is not equally advantageous to habeas corpus. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Farah Udani. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Defense for Children International Canada is here because of its concern that any decision this court makes may draw a line in the sand that is to the detriment of youth and makes it harder for them to be heard. The remedy of habeas corpus enables a child to be heard before a superior court judge who is obliged to be concerned about that child's individual needs and offers review without procedural restrictions. It is submitted that this court should be cautious of any test that creates more hurdles 
for that child to get a lawyer and seek the remedy of habeas corpus. Today, I intend to address two issues. First, the fact that habeas corpus is an elevated right for children, and second, the impact the decision of this court will have on children at large. In terms of habeas corpus being an elevated right for children, for children, this court in Stevenson found that habeas corpus is analogous to parents' patriate jurisdiction. For children, actual detention is not required to invoke the remedy. For children, habeas corpus can be applied when there are gaps in the legislation and when there are not. There are a number of cases that DCI has provided which demonstrate this broad and liberal application of habeas corpus to issues concerning children at footnotes 6 and 7 of DCI's factum, which span Canada, England, Australia, and the United States. This court needs to be mindful of the consequences of this decision for children seeking access to this elevated right. The second issue is the impact of this decision on children. Canada argues that the issues raised by DCI do not arise on the facts of this case. This argument cannot hold weight when children at present are not excluded from the Peru or May exception. I would refer this court to the cases at footnote 22, which demonstrate the over-reliance on the exception in cases involving children at risk of harm. Gao is just one example of a case of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice directly relating to 12 minors held in immigration detention for six months. And even though the Honorable Justice Chapnick noted the fact that she was troubled by the length of time the minors were in detention, she relied on Peru in exercising her discretion to decline jurisdiction. Canada also argues that the IRPA contains specific provisions dealing with children and detention. Those provisions are not sufficient. Canada recognizes that those provisions are not sufficient because in the last year there have been efforts by Canada to provide ministerial directions to limit the amount of children in immigration detention. But this only bolsters DCI's argument that the legislation is not comprehensive with respect to children and the remedy of habeas corpus needs to be available for the, those children with less procedural restrictions, not more. As just a few examples, the IRPA is silent about the use of solitary confinement for child detainees. The IRPA is silent about the requirements for notification to be given to child detainees of the reasons for their detention. They are not afforded state-funded independent legal counsel. They are entitled only to a designated representative who is not the same as an independent lawyer. There are no requirements of client confidentiality for those designated representatives. These pitfalls expose children to risk of harm. The way to address this problem is not to take two steps forward with ministerial directions and one enormous step back by creating a procedural hurdle for children in accessing their right to habeas corpus. Limiting this right contravenes Canada's obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Finally, DCI submits that the consequences of this decision will extend beyond immigration law as the Peru or May exception has. DCI has provided examples in its factum of gaps in various statutes, including the Education Act, the Alberta Protection of Children Involved in Prostitution Act, and child welfare legislation concerning children where habeas corpus may be the only remedy to assist. The court should be mindful that the decision in this case does not interfere with those children who require the right to habeas corpus to be heard. Can I ask you a, 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 a
just a, a technical question. Of course. When you're dealing with children who are, as you say, uniquely vulnerable, how is it to be brought to their attention that they would have the right of habeas as opposed to an automatic review, which they'd be subject to otherwise? Who would have the burden of letting them know that they have that option? Um, I would imagine that they would, ha they, would have to, they would have to be able to invoke that remedy. Presumably, their parent or guardian or someone would have to, um, to advise them that they could invoke that remedy. You Maybe even their designated representative could be the one that does you that. You don't see a special duty that should be placed on a detention facility? To I, I, absolutely, I do. Okay. I absolutely that's, do. That's I think that, I that's a, that would be essential, okay. that there should be a duty. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mrs. Leila Demirdaki. Thank you, Chief Justice. <clears throat> Amnesty International will address the following four points today. One, habeas corpus is a freestanding right under international law. Two, that right extends to all contexts of detention, including immigration detention. Three, the court responsible for habeas corpus should be a court within the judiciary with the power to provide an effective remedy for, to unlawful detention. And finally, that the right to habeas corpus is particularly relevant to stateless individuals due to their vulnerability to long-term detention. Under international law, ind individuals in detention have a right to habeas corpus. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which Canada has ratified, provides at Article 9 sub 4 that anyone who is deprived of their liberty has a right to take proceedings before a court and to have that court decide without delay the lawfulness of the detention and order a person's release if that detention is unlawful. Habeas corpus is also recognized under international customary law as an effective remedy for a person to challenge a detention that is or has become arbitrary. International law, uh, under international law, the right to habeas corpus is therefore a freestanding right. The UN Human Rights Committee has commented that the right to habeas corpus under the ICCPR extends to all form of administrative detention, including immigration detention. It has further stated that laws that exclude particular categories of detainees from challenging the lawfulness of the detention is a violation of the ICCPR. The UNHCR has stated that the length of detention can render an otherwise lawful detention indefinite and therefore arbitrary. Because there's no legal time limit on immigration detention under Canadian law, a person's detention can become unlawful. For this reason, and in order to comply with international law, immigration detainees must have the right to bring proceedings before a court of law to challenge the lawfulness of their detention and receive a remedy without delay. The Human, UN Human Rights Committee has commented that the court reviewing the lawfulness of the detention must be a court within the judiciary. The right to challenge the lawfulness of the detention before a court exists even if the detainee is entitled to a regular review of their detention before an administrative body. The fact that an administrative body, such as the Immigration Division, periodically reviews a person's detention does not preclude that person from bringing a habeas corpus application to have the lawfulness of their detention reviewed, determined. Sorry. The immigration detention scheme provided for in the, the IRPA fails to meet the requirements of the ICCPR. The lawfulness of detention is not one of the, of the prescribed factors uh, under IRPA that can be considered in and of itself by the immigration division when deciding the detention or continued detention of a detainee. 
The IRPA does not grant a detainee the right to challenge the lawfulness of their detention uh, before the Immigration Division. Moreover, the Immigration Division is not a court within the judiciary. Although the federal court can judicially review an Immigration Division's decision, it is limited to determining the reasonableness of the decision, not the lawfulness of the detention, and it does not provide an effective remedy as of right. Didn't Kayla say it's not lawful if it's unreasonable? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. But, um, but, um, Sorry, I'm just trying to get the distinction. Well, uh, the thing is, they're looking at the reasonableness of the decision. They're not looking at the, the uh, it's, as uh, the uh, respondent has mentioned, they're not looking at the, the contents of the, the complete record to determine whether it's lawful or not. And lawful is, is not just the length of the detention, it's many other things too. Uh, so notwithstanding the IRPA scheme to comply with the international law, immigration detainees must also have the right to bring a habeas corpus application challenging the lawfulness of their detention before a court of law. Finally, although statelessness is not a ground for detention under the IRPA, stateless individuals are at greater risk of prolonged detention because their identity may be difficult to confirm and or a state may, may, be willing, may not be willing to accept them. The European Court of Human Rights has recognized the vulnerability of stateless individuals to and the increased need of effective protection from long-term uh, immigration detention. Keeping in mind the particular vulnerabilities of stateless individuals, the right to challenge the lawfulness of the detention must be made available to immigration detainees. And just coming back to your question, I think one of the issues too is the remedy that's not available. There's no effective remedy at, for, uh, at the federal court for uh, somebody challenging the lawfulness of their detention. Yeah, I, that's the section 18.3 argument. I have a little difficulty understanding why the legislation doesn't in fact under 18.3a permit the federal court to do that. Whether it's actually done or not, I don't see why it can't be. Well, if, uh, in our factum, actually, we cited uh, a paragraph. Uh, um, the Federal Court of Appeal has stated that the Federal Court on Judicial Review can set aside a decision referred back for judgment in compliance with instructions it deems appropriate, but it can only do that in very exceptional circumstances. That's sub B, though, isn't it? Um, Under sub B. Anyway, it, I'll, yeah. I'll look at it again. Thank, okay. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Ms. Kayeska. Chief Justice, Justices. The CCLA submits that all detained persons, whether citizens or not, should have the right to review their detention pursuant to habeas corpus. We come at this from the perspective of the development of the common law, and in particular, the Peru exception, and that that development must be done in accordance with charter values. I have three points for you. First, the charter value of equality and how it informs access to habeas corpus. Second, the proper context of the Peru exception and its development in the law. And thirdly, how in May and Ferndale, the court held that habeas corpus is available to detainees even when there is a parallel review scheme and that there is no reason this court should not follow the, that precedent in the case of immigrant detainees. With respect to charter values, 
The argument that non-citizens don't deserve the same detention review remedies as citizens is dangerous. Canada should not have a tiered system of review. Habeas should not be regarded as a privilege of citizenship. This court in Andrews recognized that non-citizens are among the most vulnerable groups in our society. They can be removed from Canada. They cannot vote. This lack of political say means that access to the courts is critical to safeguard their rights. I turn to Peru. I urge this court to look at the, where, how Peru was developed. Peru was developed in the context of a removal order. It was not a challenge to Ms. Peru's detention. She was challenging the fact that she was not found to have refugee status. There was no discussion by the Court of Appeal in Peru of the length of her detention, her charter rights, or her liberty interest. The decision was not directed towards the length of detention. And in my submission, I adopt Ms. Jackman, Jackman's submissions that the other cases, Riza, Pringle, also did not have to do with detention review. They all had to do with whether you could bring a collateral attack on an immigration decision. In my view, in May and Ferndale is correct where the court stated that the court should not be concerned with the availability of remedies in concurrent jurisdictions. And that was in the case of prisoners. The court in May and Ferndale was specific that the applicant is the one who is entitled to the choice of forum. That should be the same case when we are looking at non-citizens who are detained. You're reading out the exception? Sorry, Can yes. Ferndale, you want yes. us to read that out? I, I, I'm, not saying you're, I'm not saying you're reading it out. I'm saying you're reading it in conformity with what was decided in Peru and the other cases. In May and Ferndale, I think the court, and, and, and maybe it's best that I be blunt, I think it uh, restated Peru more broadly than what the case actually stated initially. In May and Ferndale, the court said that there was an uh, 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 exception in immigration. I don't think that's fair. I think what the court m must have meant when it stated that was that there is an exception when you are challenging the underlying immigration decision, not when you're challenging the detention. And this brings me maybe to the most fundamental part of my submissions, which is then, what are the limits of habeas corpus? And, in May and, and I think in May and Ferndale, where the court says that habeas corpus should not be attacked as a collateral, should not be used as a collateral attack on the underlying decision, that is the fundamental rule. So just as a person who is convicted, a prisoner who is convicted cannot attack the, the conviction using habeas corpus. They have a right of appeal. That doesn't mean that the prisoner, once they're detained, cannot bring habeas corpus to review the detention. Similarly, a person who is subject to a removal order should not be permitted to challenge the removal order by way of habeas corpus. They should be entitled to, to review the detention 
pursuant to the removal order, pursuant to habeas corpus. In that way, you are treating both prisoners who are citizens and prisoners who are not citizens in the same way. Thank you. Thank you. Simon Boris. Chief Justice, Justices, the Canadian Prison Law Association submits that this case presents an opportunity for you to clarify an area of the law that has been plagued by confusion and has resulted in the injustice of prisoners being denied access to habeas corpus. And this is an area that the Canadian Prison Law Association members are intimately involved with. The starting point for all habeas corpus applications, of course, is that there be a deprivation of liberty. And in Dumas, this court set out the three categories of deprivation, the initial deprivation, a substantial change in conditions amounting to a further deprivation, and a continuing deprivation of liberty that has become unlawful. Now, in the, at least in the second and third categories, the deprivation uh, can be one of residual liberty of one, or one of complete liberty, uh, but this really is of no consequence with respect to the CPA's overall submissions, which is about how to properly assess whether there's been a deprivation of liberty in each of the categories, specifically in the third category. That's the case in uh, Mr. Chinna's situation. It's not disputed that his initial detention was, at least in the beginning, lawful, but what he asserted through his habeas corpus application was that his detention had become unlawful uh, by virtue of its length and, and uncertain duration. That's a third category case of Dumas. It's a deprivation of liberty gone bad. Uh, as this court made clear in, in May and Kella, the first step in the habeas application is for the applicant to establish that they've suffered a deprivation of liberty and raise reasonable grounds on which to challenge the legality of that deprivation. And the CPLA submits that this procedure is certainly appropriate for addressing any of the three types of deprivations in Dumas. However, the way to assess whether there has in fact been a deprivation will necessarily vary from category to category. In the second category, a substantial change in conditions, uh, which was the scenario in both May and Kella, the involuntary transfer, the proper way to assess is whether to is look at whether there's been a substantial change in conditions that's sufficient to constitute a further deprivation. Uh, but by definition, a third category case cannot be assessed in this way because the prisoner whose initially valid deprivation of liberty continues has not experienced any increase in the degree of which they're deprived of their liberty. They've not lost anything that they once had, like in the second category. Rather, they're asking for something they're legally entitled to and are being denied. In Mr. Chinna's case, he asserted that his rights under, essentially under Section uh, 9, to be free from arbitrary detention, and is, is uh, as the basis for his legal entitlement. And he claims that he suffers a deprivation of liberty because uh, of that charter breach. Reliance on specific charter rights is certainly one way that an applicant could establish a deprivation of liberty in the third category, but it's not the only way. The CPLA submits a prisoner could also point to statute, case law, or policy directives to establish their legal entitlement. 
But the bottom line is that where a prisoner asserts that the status quo has become unlawful because they're being denied something that they're legally entitled to, the application judge on a habeas corpus application must examine the prisoner's claim and determine whether it raises reasonable grounds on which to question the legality of the detention. They cannot dispense with the prisoner's claim, as some judges have, by simply saying that the prisoner is asking for something that they've never had. And that comes up in the cases uh, cited in footnote 15 of the CPLA's factum, and specifically, maybe the easiest read of that is Pelegi versus Canada, the first case cited there. Um, what exactly a particular applicant is entitled to is not something that needs to be settled by this court. That can be left for fulsome argument on the merits of some individual case or every individual case in the future. But the framework, uh, and again, that's the framework that assessing deprivations of liberty in the third category is to look at whether the prisoner is being denied something that they're legally entitled to. That the CPLA submits can be endorsed by the court in this case. Uh, and despite the fact that there's been this confusion in the lower levels uh, of courts and even at the courts of appeal, um, the CPLA submits that, that this is necessarily the way to uh, look at a third category case and it, it, this court can and should make clear that it is not to be conflated with the way second category cases are assessed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jared Will. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. I represent the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, which is a pan-Canadian organization with a long-standing concern about the rights of non-citizens detained under the IRPA. This court has just heard what I would suggest are a number of good arguments about why superior courts should exercise their habeas corpus jurisdiction in respect of immigration detainees. But my client's position requires you to ask a slightly different but equally important question. Namely, why shouldn't they exercise that jurisdiction? I would submit to you that the Attorney General of Canada's submission that this court is being asked to recognize the habeas corpus jurisdiction of superior courts over immigration detainees is misleading. There is no dispute in the courts below in any of the relevant jurisprudence that they have that jurisdiction. The question is when and under what circumstances should they decline to exercise it? And it might seem like a trivial point, but it's important. The question is... In fairness. Yeah, in fairness, but the phrase was there that you were being asked to recognize the jurisdiction, and that's what I'm taking issue with. The, the question is not, do we open the door? The question is, do we close it? My clients start from the premise that immigration detainees have a right under Section 10C of the Charter to habeas corpus. There is no decision of this court or any other court that says the contrary. As a result, detainees should bear no burden in merely asking a superior court to exercise its habeas corpus jurisdiction. That is a right. And I agree with Ms. Jackman's submission that this is really the third case of that trilogy. 
And there's a reason that the Section 10C rights of immigration detainees wasn't addressed in May or Kela or Peru or Reza. It's not because it was missed, it's because it was not before the court. Those cases did not involve detention. So all the immigration references are obiter? Well, I would submit to you that the, the phrase in immigration matters does not include immigration detention. In all of those cases, they had to do with core immigration matters, status in the country, the validity of a deportation order, not the legality of a detention per se. Another point that I want to highlight with respect to my client's position is that we recognize that superior courts do have a discretion at common law to decline to hear habeas corpus applications. But this court has decided time and time again that when a charter right is going to be breached by the exercise of judicial discretion, that requires a justification akin to section one. I've given you Dijonet, CBC, and Mentuk at tabs two, three, and four of Carl's condensed book. There's no reason that the same shouldn't be true of a breach of section 10C. So it is our submission that the framework that this court developed in Dijonet and refined in Mentuk and then found in NS to be equally applicable in other contexts there's no reason that that shouldn't be applied here. The question is, declining jurisdiction is going to breach the 10C right. Is it justified? This court has come up with a framework for determining whether such discretionary decisions are justified, and that's the framework that should be applied. And it has been appropriately recognized to be a stringent framework. In other cases, because what was an issue was freedom of expression, a hallmark of democratic society, a cornerstone of the common law. The same is true of habeas corpus. There's no reason the test should be any less stringent. What do you say about uh, the kind of the section one-like approach for the habeas corpus judge who says, yes, you've been unduly detained, it looks like it's indeterminate, but you're also satisfied you're a real danger to the public. Just take me through that scenario. Sure, so I just want to make, a, uh, make clear that what we're talking about here is the exercise of discretion to hear the case no, or I not. No, I know what you but are. Then we, I want to get to we, the practical move, stuff. Sure, absolutely, but I think once we move to that situation, it, 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 there, there's nothing that can be justified under Section 1 because the, the government act of detention is not a law, it's an act. So if it's unlawful, it has to be brought to an end. The answer to the concern about danger to the public flight risk, et cetera, is the imposition of conditions of varying degrees of severity, but if it's unlawful, it's unlawful and it has to be brought to an end. Justice Isabella, I can answer your 183A question if you like, but I recognize that I'm out of time. Would you like an answer? <laughs> My colleague so, would like an answer. So, so it, it, it comes down to two things. 183A is, is mandamus. So 183A is the, the jurisdiction of the federal court to order a, a tribunal to do something that it's unlawfully refused to do, which in most circumstances is render a decision or hold a hearing, not to dictate the outcome. And the reason for that, the reason that the, direct, the, the power of the federal court to issue a directed verdict is so narrow is because it's recognized 
that even if the decision under review is unreasonable and has to be set aside, that doesn't mean that there could not be another decision that would fall within the range of reasonable outcomes. So the federal court understands its jurisdiction as one of deference to the Immigration Division and not to substitute it itself to the place of the Immigration Division to make the initial decision. Thank you Thank very you. much. Nader Hassan. Chief Justice, Justices, we should not be less free in 2018 than we were in the 17th century, because even in the 17th century, the writ of habeas corpus was available to so-called enemy aliens and spies. And more recently, even in the hyper-politicized, polarizing context of Guantanamo Bay detention, the U.S. Supreme Court repeatedly rebuffed the U.S. government's attempts to strip non-citizen detainees of the right to seek the writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. federal courts. Let me deal with Justice Moldaver's question about onus. Now, my friend for the appellant has argued that the onus of detention before the board always rests on the minister and says that Justice Rouleau and Chowdhury got it wrong. My friend relies on the Federal Court of Appeals decision in Thanabala Singham. Let me read what Thanabala Singham says at paragraph 16. However, once the minister has made out a prima facie case for continued detention, the individual must lead some evidence or risk continued detention. The minister may establish a prima facie case in a variety of ways, including reliance on reasons, prior, on reasons for prior detentions. So in other words, once you get on that hamster wheel of ongoing detention review, it's very difficult to get off. So as a technical legalistic matter, the burden, the legal burden may rest with the minister, but the de facto evidentiary onus rests with the individual. Now, I also want to briefly deal with my friend's suggestion that, yes, mistakes may get made, but mistakes can be corrected. Firstly, as we know, there is no right of appeal. Uh, there's only judicial review with leave, and even the judicial re review, if granted, is very limiting. Firstly, and this is something that hasn't been addressed yet, under Rule 302 of the Federal Court's rules, the Federal Court limits judicial review to a single decision or order. And that's a, that's a rule that's enforced with some strictness in the federal court and federal court of appeal. One of the decisions we cite in our factum uh, at paragraph 21, the Escalante decision, uh, it provides a good example. That's a case uh, where an immigration detainee argued uh, that the, the decision below, the board's decision, was unreasonable and invoked some of the prior decisions. And the federal court said, no, no, you know, you're here challenging reasons for detention number six, not number five, so we can't talk about reasons for detention number five. 
And that's problematic because the unfairness um, of the detention may not rest on a single decision of the board. Any one decision of the board in isolation may pass muster under the deferential reasonableness analysis. Uh, it is perhaps the, the ongoing cumulative effect of these decisions that renders ongoing detention unlawful and arbitrary. And by contrast, habeas review permits a holistic assessment of the overall lawfulness of the detention, taking into account all of these detention decisions in the entire record. So going back to Justice Abella's question, well, how is the question different? The, the question and onus is fundamentally different. Once the detainee establishes that it's a lengthy or uncertain duration of detention, such that detention has become unmoored from immigration purposes, the onus would effectively shift to the government to put forward a basis for justifying that ongoing detention. So it's the, the, the nature of the onus and the nature of the question that is fundamentally different. I see that my time is uh, rapidly concluding. Um, barring any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. A reply? Chief Justice, Justices, I'll be making submissions in reply on behalf of the Attorney General of Canada. As a first point, if I may, simply to follow up on um, a, a point that my colleague, uh, Ms. Nygaard, had made in response to a question uh, from Justice Maldaver, we had promised to provide some authority for the proposition that as time goes on, the burden on the minister increases to, to justify the length of detention. And so I can provide those references. The first case is this court's decision in Sharkawi, uh, which is at tab 19 of the condensed book at paragraph 112. And that proposition was then taken up by the federal court. I can provide by way of example a case called Ahmed. The site, unfortunately, it's not in our condensed book, but the citation is 2015 FC 792 at paragraphs 32 to 33. So in the time remaining, there are three points I hope to address uh, in reply. Uh, the first is to respond to uh, the submission that was made by my friends, for the respondent, that the court in conducting its analysis and determining whether the May and Ferndale exception applies, that what the court should be doing is comparing habeas corpus to federal court judicial review and not looking at the board process. And we say that cannot be the case. We are not here saying that federal court judicial review in and of itself is equivalent to habeas corpus. What we are saying is that the entire IRPA scheme provides a complete, comprehensive, and expert process for review. And our submissions on that front uh, are, in fact, supported by the approach this court took in May and Ferndale. So if I can refer the court to, and I won't take you there given the time, but paragraphs 53 to 64 of the May and Ferndale decision, when the court was deciding whether the correctional grievance process and federal court judicial review, in fact, should uh, militate against the exercise of habeas corpus jurisdiction uh, in an effort to determine whether the so-called Peru exception would apply to that scheme. The court did not look only at federal court judicial review. The court, in fact, looked in detail at the nature of the administrative scheme, and it was the flaws in the administrative scheme 
that resulted in a decision that the exception should not apply in that case. So we say the same approach uh, should be taken here. The entire scheme needs to be looked so at. So does the entire scheme include the opportunity for judicial review? Yes. So the entire scheme includes the board review and federal court judicial review. I'd like to move on to my second point, uh, and that is a rather tricky issue uh, in the sense that I think the appellants and respondents are ships passing in the night in terms of characterizing uh, the point that is in issue before the court on habeas corpus. It's this notion that habeas corpus allows a direct challenge, whereas on judicial review, you are looking at a single decision. Uh, it, it's a complicated issue, but what I will say is we've included at tab 10 of the condensed book a case called Karimi Arshad. Uh, that case is an example of the federal court looking at the broader history and background of a detention in conducting a judicial review of a dis detention decision. The entire factual context of the detention is before the court on federal court judicial review, just as the board member in deciding whether detention should continue has to consider the length of detention to that point and all the steps that have been taken by the minister. I would also say that uh, my friend, Ms. Jackman, for uh, the respondent, indicated that an example, because it's hard to find those examples. An example of the type of case where the court was looking at the um, detention as a whole, that is directly attacking the detention, might be the Steele case. And in my submission, quite the opposite is true. And I would simply refer the court to pages 1409, 1411 to 1417 of the Steele decision, where it's quite apparent that what the court was doing there in assessing the lawfulness of the detention was looking at the parole board's decision and considering whether its application of the statutory criteria to the particular facts of Mr. Steele's case resulted in an unreasonable or charter violating decision. Ultimately, there was a finding of charter breach. But that, that is not an example of a case where um, the board's, the, the review by the court somehow becomes untethered from either the statutory scheme or the uh, administrative decision that's an issue and I see that I'm out of time. Can I ask one sure. question? One of the uh, questions that has come up uh, and was just answered, I think, uh, by Mr. Uh, Will, do you accept his conclusion that Section 183A does not permit the remedy? The argument from Ms. Jacksman was the remedies are different, habeas corpus, you're out. Uh, the Federal Court of Appeal can only send back. Is that your interpretation as well of what they can theoretically do under Section 18.3? It is open to the federal court on judicial review to uh, issue uh, directions in the nature of a directed verdict. I acknowledge, the Crown acknowledges, that those situations tend to be rare. The more typical remedy is to send the matter back to the board for redetermination. However, the scheme provides for release. The scheme requires that release be considered every 30 days, regardless of whether the detainee has asked for it or not. But the, the argument was made that even if the federal court says this is unreasonable, the board is not bound by that decision and can decide to continue to detain. The board is bound by the federal court's decisions. It must, in fact, take them into account. It all turns on the nature of the error that's been identified by the court. 
And what about their argument that you can't deal with conditions of detention? The board is well able to deal with conditions of detention and the reasonableness or lack thereof of any conditions or the failure to impose conditions can be dealt with on judicial review. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank uh, all councils for their submissions. The court will take the case under advisement and the court is adjourned till tomorrow morning, 9.30.